I think that that's a huge divide between RL now and where RL needs to be, which is that we're not even looking at the right problems. We yeah. somehow need to figure out, well, how do we actually get our data sets to the scale? And the scale here means diversity to the scale that's large enough so that we can actually see some of this magic. Uh, and simple things like you can chain on 50 different Atari games together. Well, that's not going to give you generalization. You might generalize to the 51st Atari game, but maybe not. Maybe actually you won't. I, I highly suspect that 50 different examples won't let you generalize to a 51st example. <laughs> you probably need thousands of different examples. You would need to train this agent on thousands of different environments. Hey there, I'm your host, Kanjun, and we are Generally Intelligent an independent research lab developing AI agents that mirror the fundamentals of human-like intelligence and that can learn to safely solve problems in the real world. On our podcast, we interview researchers about their behind-the-scenes ideas, opinions, and intuitions that are hard to share in papers and talks. We hope you learn as much as we have in our quest to understand and build the mind. Today, we're talking with Oleg Rutkin, a PhD student at Penn and researcher at Google. He's advised by Costa Danielidis at Penn and Sergey Levin at Berkeley. Oleg is interested in unsupervised intelligent agents with world models and data-driven agent training. Most of his work is on model-based reinforcement learning in the visual domain. This was a really fun conversation. We're a fan of Oleg's work and actually have used some of his papers in our own work. Well, welcome to the podcast. We're really excited to have you. To start, we'd love to hear more about how did you develop your initial research interests and how did you end up here from where you started? Even in undergrad, I studied computer science and I was kind of always really interested in intelligence. It, it sounds a little cliche, but that's what it was. And the interesting thing about it was that it just felt very different from the stuff they actually teach you in undergrad. I even took an AI class and even in the AI class, they didn't really teach me anything about something that I would think would resemble intelligence or, or human intelligence or, or even animal intelligence for that matter, right? I remember thinking about a very simple problem, right? Like how do you make a robot peel potatoes? And I realized that I don't know any algorithms to make a robot peel potatoes. I, I, I could probably design hardware that could do that, but algorithmically, it just seems like an impossible problem. And yeah, it was just a really fascinating problem to me. So yeah, I moved in that direction. I wanted to move in that direction. First, I got into computer vision and, and very traditional computer vision as well. So that, that wasn't even anything related to learning. So in undergrad, I did a little bit of like very, very mathematical kind of like feature matching, algebraic geometry type of computer vision that people only did at that particular university in Czech Republic and Prague. I love that because it had a lot of math and I love math, but it like, it didn't feel right with regards to, again, like how human vision works. It, it just, human vision probably has a lot of math, but there are also a lot of things that math cannot tell you to do. Like, and right. And presumably you need to do learning for that. So I guess back then I really didn't know anything about learning. So just. Everything felt wrong. It's like, I didn't know what's the solution. And then at some point I discovered deep learning and everything clicked. I was just like, well, this is how human intelligence must work. Or at least this is the closest to human intelligence we have from all of the other algorithms I know. Mm -hmm. And I got really into that in my PhD, mm -hmm. basically. And then I'm always unsatisfied with what I have. Like it still didn't feel like the right answer. So I was doing computer. Well, my lab is doing computer vision. I'm advised by Costas Danielidis, who is doing geometric computer vision with the, together with deep learning. And I kind of looked at what people were doing and people were working on human pose estimation, human shape estimation, optical flow estimation, and they were doing it with deep learning. So it was kind of, at least it had learning, but it still, it didn't feel like the right problem for me. I was 
I guess I'm just a maximalist here. Like I want to work on the most interesting problem. And to me, the most interesting problem is intelligence. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, actually. I, I don't actually have an answer to why. It's just, I guess I want to work on interesting problems. And this is the most interesting one. It's hard to yeah. explain. I think, I think we have with that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think both of us have done research in machine learning on various other problems. Like Josh went on machine translation. I did a bunch of work in Python trading. And similarly, like, you know, there are interesting problems, but it just kind of feels like, what's the point? Like, everything else is solvable. So <laughs> it's much more interesting to, I, I don't know, I just find it much more interesting intrinsically understand, like, why do humans learn the way we do? Yeah, this is a very podcast kind of conversation. Like, this is. This is what I imagine people would talk on podcasts. They would like sit and be like, oh, we want to solve intelligence. (laughs) As opposed to, (laughs) like in your lab. As opposed to actually solving a real problem that matters. Yes. (laughs) Or even trying to solve intelligence. Yeah, no, it's, it's funny, but. So when you got into your PhD, how did you figure out who to work with and what to work Mm -hmm. on? What were you interested in the beginning? When I started doing my PhD, well, so everybody was working on these computer vision problem things. And I just felt like if I'm doing a PhD and it's a five-year PhD, well, I should really work on what I want to work on, right? Okay. I don't want to just somebody tell me what to work on. I, I wanted to do my own thing. And so I decided, well, it's time to do what I'm really interested in mm-hmm. and find something that's closest to the, the goal of understanding intelligence. And uh, there was this guy, Andrew Yeagle, who was also in Costas' lab. And curiously, he was working in video prediction. He's now a deep mind and he does really cool stuff with the transformers and uh, this new model called the perceiver. That was really fortunate that I met him. And he's a neuroscientist as well, which is the funniest thing about him, which he originally came from neuroscience and then he joined our lab, my advisor's lab, because he was also interested in actual learning. He looked at what the neuroscience people did and he didn't feel like They were actually trying to understand the human brain. So he switched over to the computational side. So that was kind of really funny. And now he just does AI. And I just started working with him on video prediction, which is the thing he did back then. And to me, that's how I got into all of this, basically. That felt like a problem that's much closer to what we actually want, right? Like understanding human pose and shape. Sure, that's very useful. Definitely that's something that humans do. I don't think humans actually have a mesh of every object around them, but it's probably a good proxy. But prediction, and what I mean by prediction here is predicting into the future, actually feels like something that you absolutely need to have for intelligence, just because that allows you to do planning, right? Like that allows you to reason about future events. And that in turn allows you to make decisions. And I was really interested in making decisions, right? Autonomous decision-making to me is basically the definition of intelligence, I guess, right? If we can have a robot that can optimize the world according to its own objectives, which again, sounds like I think people would talk on a, on a podcast, but if we have a robot that can actually impact the world, that, that can interact with the world, not just passively as in computer vision, but, but actually change something, hopefully the robot's objectives are still aligned with the human objectives so that we will have, hopefully we'll have some way to enforce that. But in the first place, we need to have the capability for the robot to decide how to optimize its objective. And we currently don't really have complex robots that can do that, right? Well, we have simple robots that can do that, right? So a microwave can decide how to best heat up your dinner or mm-hmm. I don't know, an elevator can decide how to get you to the right floor, but something more than that, right? Like can we have something that's, if not human level, at least mice level, mice are actually pretty smart. 
we can get there, that would already be very impressive, but also ideally human level, obviously. And that's how I got into reinforcement learning. I did not know it back then. I did not know that I'm doing reinforcement learning, but now I think if you just look at the definition, reinforcement learning is the formalism for this kind of decision-making, right? There's a conference on reinforcement learning and decision-making, and that's because it's the same thing, right? It's, it's the yeah. mathematical formalism for how do you take actions that impact the world around you and how do you essentially change the world around you in accordance with your objectives. That makes sense. And so you kind of fill into RL through this video prediction work. I'm really curious, actually, do you know why Andrew Yeager felt like the neuroscientists were not actually trying to understand the brain? Like, what did they were doing instead? I'm just going to say what I think. And I think, well, actually, I'm going to say what the most interesting neuroscientists I know think. And that would be Tim Lillicrap, who's a person at DeepMind. And a lot of other people at DeepMind, I imagine, think the same way. But Tim Lillicrap, together with Conrad Cording, who's a professor at Finn, actually, and some other people wrote this paper on kind of neuroscience and, and AI and what neuroscience can do for AI and vice versa. And I think... Fundamentally, the problem with neuroscience that everybody except people in that paper is doing is that a lot of people just work on kind of physiology, meaning you insert electrodes in people's brains or macaque brains or rat brains, and you kind of try to figure out the representation in a rat brain or a human brain, or with humans, presumably you would do a fMRI because it's cheaper and you don't have to actually damage somebody's brain. So that's sometimes, but then it's not as good because if Mariah actually it doesn't give you a signal, that's as good. But still fundamentally, they're trying to figure out the architecture of the brain. Actually go in and see, okay, well, this neuron does this kind of computation. This neuron does this computation. And obviously on the neuron level, you will never be able to, to do that. Although they're trying to do that for mice. Even that's probably impossible. It's possible for worms or flies, perhaps. They think they can do it for mice. Well, I, I don't know. Good, good luck. I, I think that's really far away, but maybe even for humans, you could kind of at least look at different parts of the brain and you can say, well, okay, this, this region over here does this kind of computation, this, this region over there does this kind of computation. And then once you figure out what all the regions are doing and how they're doing it, you will know how human intelligence works. But the problem with that is that human intelligence is just way too complicated for that to ever work. If you look at the number of neurons and the number of connections in human's brain, and if you look at the amount of experience that humans get during their life, it's an exorbitant amount, right? It's just, it's too much for somebody to just sit down and, and write down a map of how all the computation in the human brain works. And even more interestingly, and, and these arguments from directly from that paper and also other talks by Tim Lillicrap and, and Conrad and other people, if you look at the amount of information that humans receive through their DNA, so the amount of information that's actually encoded, that's kind of intrinsic, well, basically that, that's what makes us human, right? Our DNA contains all of the information you need to make a human. And if you look at that amount of information, it's very small. It's, mm -hmm. it's much, much smaller than the amount of information in your brain. So where does this extra information come from? How does it happen to be in our brain? Well, that has to be through learning. It has to be that the majority, 99 or 99.9% .9 of the information, and you can actually calculate that. Right? You can calculate the number of bits your DNA stores. You can approximate the number of bits your brain stores. And the vast majority of these bits you learn from experience. So if you want to understand neuroscience, you could try to understand what's encoded in DNA, but what's encoded in DNA is the learning algorithm. The majority of that has to be the learning algorithm because that's how humans are better than all of the other animals. We just learn better. We are more adaptive. 
And the neuroscientists, well, they just don't know how to do that. They don't know how to study the learning algorithm. There are some people who are doing that, but it's just an incredibly hard problem from a neuroscience perspective, because then you, you would probably have to look at the human over a time of 50 years. And then how do you do that if your grad student graduates in five years? I mean, that is quite literally impossible. So to me, I think the computational way of understanding intelligence is just way more promising, right? If we can build something, well, presumably if I build an AI that can do everything that a human do, then I will know that I understand human intelligence, at least to the extent that I can build it. It's the earliest, I think that's the Kantian argument, analysis by synthesis, or maybe the something like that. I, I'm not very good at philosophy. And that's the difference, right? It, I think, curiously, it might be that a lot of the ways in which we develop understanding of human intelligence will also be through AI, not just neuroscience. Like, that's very speculative. That hasn't really happened yet, I suppose. Although it did to some extent. A lot of neuroscientists are working on deep learning models now. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it definitely has spread. That's really interesting. This idea that what's encoded in DNA, it has to be a learning True. Cool. I mean, I think that's how we ended up, I mean, that's kind of similar to how we think about things as well. Actually, when I went to school, I originally was going to do computational neuroscience, but I felt like that had the same way. I felt like, well, this isn't really telling me anything about intelligence or learning. We're giving better models and neurons, but that isn't answering any of the questions that I have. Something that I've been thinking about recently, I've been curious about your thoughts is, you know, you're saying like, oh, if we can build it, then we understand it. I've always thought that as well, but I've started to down a little bit more recently as we have these much larger and larger models. Like in the 70s, Instruct new humans and the humans are also able to learn, right? Like you could have a kid and then the kid, the like, great, just because instructed doesn't mean that we understand it. Uh, <laughs> as we construct really large models, right? Like, you know, GPT-3 or Jolly or something like this, it does become a little bit harder to understand. So I wonder if we might end up making models that are very powerful and potentially intelligent that we just really don't understand at all. Yeah, actually <laughs> building on that. I've been thinking like we have these deep neural networks, these kind of optimization systems and like you kind of set up the system by defining something to optimize for and, and how to do that. But then like the system learns something and it's, if I were actually to understand what's going on, what I need to understand is what it's learning, but that's not in the setup at all. I can set up a system and not understand at all what it's learning. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of feel like the understanding and the building are separate from each other in this way. Maybe, but I guess I wanted to gear. Yeah. Yes. I didn't think about, about that. Yeah. Really more complicated things than our actual understanding of it. That's a good point. I mean, both of these, I think it's not a silver bullet, right? Like if we build human intelligence, right? Or right now we have Dali, which generates images, Dali too, which are pretty similar to, you know, definitely way better than images I can generate, but also pretty similar to even, and I don't know, somebody who studied drawing for probably several months. I have no idea what the number is, but it seems pretty good. So it's on the same level with some humans, at least. And we don't understand it. I, I, it's probably, I, I haven't read the paper, but I assume we, we don't really understand pretty much anything about it. But I guess there are a few interesting things about that. So certainly, I don't think we'll, even if we build the AI, I don't think we'll be able to understand all questions about intelligence, even less so human intelligence. But there's still some questions we will be able to understand. And for instance, one really interesting question is, well, what if we just take the largest transformer in existence, and we train it on the data set of all human experience, will we then get human level AI, right? And if yes, that means that human intelligence is fundamentally just, you know, just curve fitting, right? Like everybody hates curve fitting, but if that does work, then that means that that's all we need. We just need gradient descent and some clever architecture, or maybe not even that clever architecture. The transformer is, it's all right. It, it's not that complicated. You can teach it to an undergrad class for sure. Mm -hmm. 
But it's not clear to me that that's all that's needed. Maybe there's something more. Certainly for decision-making, there's something more, right? For decision-making, you don't just need to have an objective for learning. You also need to have an objective for data collection. And then there are things that are even more complex than that, which is after you've learned something, presumably you've learned some skills, but which skill do you apply for each particular task, right? So it's not just in reinforcement learning or in decision-making, you need to make many different decisions. You, it's not just, if you just want to factory robot, sure, you, you can train the robot with a single objective. It just needs to sort the objects in the way that the objects have to be sorted on or pick the particular item that the customer wants right now and, and pack it, right? That's a single well-defined objective. Humans can do much more than that. Humans can quickly adapt to new objectives and new situations as well. And I think that's something that's really interesting about humans. And perhaps there is something more that's needed for that. But also maybe not that much more. We already have a good objective for supervised learning. Well, now we just need a really good objective for data collection and a really good objective for adaptation. So maybe we just need two more objectives and then it will be done. And then we just train a big transformer with all of these three objectives together and we're done, right? But also maybe there's much more structure that's needed. So that's like one question, like how much human structure is actually necessary for intelligence versus no structure. And if there is structure that's needed, that might help us understand perhaps something again about which parts of the human brain are actually important. And maybe that will tell us something about diseases. I'm really not qualified to speak about any of that. I'm not a medical doctor, so mm -hmm. I don't even know anything about mental issues. I think that's a good point that there are definitely, at least to me, it feels similar. There are certainly other components that we want besides like a big transformer. And I think one of the things that's interesting about some of the work that you've done and other work that people do in academia and not necessarily in industry is figuring out in a smaller setting, like what are those things? How do we make something that's right. good operation and, and like learning new things, right? Because in a toy, you can make it better. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. So I, I lose my train of thought sometimes because I'm too excited, but I, I did want to like going back to the kind of the big transformer idea, even if there is no structure, even in that case, I think it is still quite possible that that will be very helpful for us in understanding intelligence because we would be able to understand the learning process. And perhaps the learning process will look pretty similar to human learning process. It probably won't, won't be exactly the same because this transformer will get all of the data from the beginning, whereas the human needs to collect a lot of data. But perhaps we will also be able to understand the failures of the learning process. And that I think might be very interesting because I highly suspect that a lot of the failures might look very similar to failures in the human learning process or failures in the human decision-making process, right? So maybe we would be able to better understand this sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. But it's it's extremely speculative, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's one thing that I've been thinking about a little bit, which is, I just, like, one of the, like, people actually fail in pretty predictable ways, right? And learning, like we are too overconfident and we like learn things too quickly. My ads are like, what's the next number in the sequence? One, two, three, and you're like four. And like, no, it's fries. Or like, no, it's 75 because I just made an arbitrary sequence. People like are very certain about like the next number of a sequence, right? And they're very certain about things. But that certainty, I think, it's kind of like a, it's a turn off. It's like a double-sided thing. It's a double-sided sword. It's like, on the one hand, being able to learn really quickly allows us to learn from so much less data than two to three. But, it also makes us much more overconfident, yeah, right? Yeah. And so you have these trade-offs. So I think it's not necessarily like one way of learning this dramatically better necessarily, but like it's just different in different circumstances. You might want to be overconfident versus underconfident versus like curve fitting versus extrapolating. I think it's more real. I'm excited for us to see like more of a diversity of like, well, in this case, you want to like be really overconfident and learn from just a few bits. And in this case, you want to like, yep, it's huge. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. It might be that this overconfidence is actually what 
enables human intelligence, it might be a good thing, right? Because in some situations, you might have to learn really, really quickly. And for that, you kind of just have to go with the best hypothesis. You don't have time to think, oh, what are the other options? It's also interesting that neural networks are extremely overconfident on out-of-distribution data. Perhaps it's, it has nothing to do with the, I mean, I hope it has nothing to do with the reason humans are overconfident. I hope that the reason humans are overconfident is because that actually makes sense. And the reason neural networks are overconfident is because we just don't know how to design better neural networks. So I think that's a, that's probably a failing of the current neural networks, but it's, it's an interesting bit of trivia, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I think kind of going into your research a little bit more for a second, like one of the things, as you were saying about RL before is that I think RL is a setting where at least in like a naturalistic setting, you do need to learn very quickly. Like you cannot learn that jumping off a cliff is a bad idea. You sort of need to have cleaned this out ahead of time. <laughs> your world model. Like you can't be making fatal mistakes all the time. So you need to like learn very quickly as an agent in the real world. But not necessarily in an RL setting. In an RL setting, like in a game, you die as many times as you want. You keep coming back. So I think that, yeah. I think that this is actually a really important point. And I think there has to be a distinction between what we want and what is realistically achievable, right? And so kind of like, what is the final objective? And what is what we are actually going to have to build in our agents. And ideally, we would have our car never drive off a cliff if you're training an autonomous car with RL, which I hope nobody is doing because it's definitely going to drive off a cliff, but maybe <laughs> train it with offline RL or something. Mm-hmm. And I do think that offline RL is probably a much better idea here where you actually, you, you're not really telling it to collect any new data or somehow maybe collect the new data, but very, very cautiously. Mm-hmm. But if you want to train it with online RL, well, you just have to be okay with it driving off a cliff. And then I guess the question is, well, how do humans learn to drive and not drive off a cliff? And that's presumably because there would be somebody with you in the car and they will tell you, well, you're too close to the cliff. You should drive the other way. And so they will give you a huge negative reward for <laughs> the cliff. As an adult, perhaps you, you can learn that yourself because you, you wish some movies about cars driving off a cliff and then you can just imagine that that's not a good thing to do. But I think if you look at infants, there are certainly... A lot of things infants do that would presumably kill them. Well, that turned a little dark, but there are a lot of unsafe things infants do uh, during learning and just fundamentally learning in the real world is unsafe and we'll have to have a way to deal with that somehow. But to me, at least the fact that human, well, the fact that the way humans solve this problem is by essentially having a caretaker for the infant that prevents anything bad from happening. That to me says that maybe, maybe that's a problem, but maybe that's either an unsolvable problem or a problem that's not really necessary to solve because maybe we will do the same for AI. We will have somebody who actually watches the process and makes sure the process is safe. But then of course, you do want the AI to learn very quickly. So if it's driving off a cliff or if it's very dangerously close to the cliff, it's in a new situation that it has never seen before. You wanted to have the best idea possible of first, what's going to happen if you drive off a cliff. And then you at least wanted to understand that it's in the situation that it has never seen before. You don't want this kind of overconfidence in that particular case. So I think there are many very interesting questions that perhaps we don't even have answers to, or maybe we do, but we haven't implemented them yet in RL on how do you get this kind of quick adaptation to new situations? I think that's extremely important. And that's something about data efficiency, but also just something about once you're in a new situation, can you really do anything, do our current algorithms generalize to a new situation like that? Mm-hmm. And, and that's unclear to me, right? Like even, I guess the most common thing to 
to think about would be meta learning, but meta learning doesn't actually give you the answer to that. Meta learning never generalizes to auto distribution situations. So that cannot be the answer, or at least it's not the full answer. There has to be something else, perhaps something about the structure of your algorithm that actually makes your algorithm think in the first place, well, what should they do in this new situation? As opposed to just rely on like a forward pass from your neural network that's trained on different situations, right? If you're just doing a forward pass and on a neural network that's not trained for out of distribution generalization, then it will not generalize for in these out of distribution cases. So I think there's a fundamental mismatch in how we are training these mm -hmm. current neural networks in the sense that they're just not equipped well enough to handle this new situation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really agree with that. Yeah. What I like about some of your work is that it seems at least like pointing at some of these issues and not necessarily have, you know, have, we don't have the full answers to all of these yet, but there's certainly like plan to explore or Alexa or some of these, which are talking about the information component or like the LAPCO one. You know, also have a bunch of stuff about sort of like planning and projecting things for the future, right? Which is why we want sort of all based RLs so we can like have a model of the world and sort of understand and make predictions and like do this kind of planning, um, the sort of things that it enables. So I think. Yeah. What is your intuition on, obviously, the common answer is meta-learning, but getting quick adaptation to new situations in RL, like, do you have intuition on how to do that better or, like, areas that you'd want to explore or better problem setups or better training setups? Personally, I think one simple thing you could do is you, you could have a model, right? If you're in a new situation and you need to adapt to this new situation, if you're just doing a forward path through your neural network, that's not trained on this new situation, that's not going to work. Mm -hmm. But if you're doing planning, that might work a little better. It, it's still probably not going to work super well because your, well, your model was never trained on this situation. So it might not generalize to it. And then the plan that you come up with will not be adequate, but that's okay. If you're in, in a new situation, well, there's no way for you to come up with the optimal solution. You just have to come up with the best possible solution. And I do strongly feel that using the model would be better in that case than just using a model three method. And this is for that precise reason that well, using a model, you can generate a lot of new experience. You can generate these mm -hmm. imagined rollouts. I, I guess that's jargon, but that's that's what we call them in, mm -hmm. in Plan to Explore and that some other people call it in the Dreamer paper. But yeah, so you can use the model imagination to kind of figure out, well, what might happen in this situation? It's imagination, so it's probably going to be wrong, but at least it might be a better guess than just straight up being overconfident and being like, oh, okay, so what does a, let's say a policy gradient, what would a policy gradient method do? Well, it, it would just look at this new image and it's like, okay, well, I'm driving off a cliff, but I'm still pretty close to the, well, I'm pretty close to the edge of the road, but not that close. So maybe it's fine. Or maybe, you know, it, it will see the road and it's like, oh, well, okay. I know that every time previously I've, I've driven on the road, even if I drive slightly off the road, I can come back. So it's okay to drive slightly off the road, right? Uh, whereas if you have a model, your model might actually tell you, well, Actually, it's not okay because it will look several time steps into the future and it will realize, okay, well, in this particular situation, you cannot come back to the road. And this is, I would say, also speculative because I don't know whether models will actually give you this kind of generalization. Mm -hmm. But I would say that certainly in neuroscience, people are seeing that models enable the sort of latent learning. Mm -hmm. That's a concept from neuroscience where, or cognitive science or both, where when you're in one situation, you're actually learning something about other situations as well. People in, in neuroscience are seeing that you, you can actually look at the you know, neurons of a rat and, and you can see that, well, it appears that th there's a certain process. And okay, I, again, I'm not qualified to speak about this. I've read the paper at some point 
I've read one, um, well, a, a big paper is Cognitive Maps in Rats and Men, right, by Tolman from something like 70 years ago. In that, in that paper, they found that there is this process in the rat's brain that's associated with learning a map, essentially a map of its environment. And if it learns a map of its environment, that's something that's transferable knowledge. It, it, it's a different kind of learning, not just Model 3 learning, but actually learning a model, which a map in this case is a model. And once you actually have a model, that model transfers to, let's say, a new task, or perhaps even a new situation like that, right? So if you are in a new part of the maze, but you have a map, well, maybe you can navigate even, even from this new location in the maze. So I think there's pretty interesting evidence from sort of natural learning, human and animal learning, that models are pretty important for generalization and adaptation in that way. And also even in reinforcement learning, we are already seeing that, well, for instance, models are more data efficient. And why could that be? Well, that would presumably be because you don't need as much data to learn a good model. The model kind of allows you to learn with fewer data. So once you're in a new situation, perhaps you don't need a lot of data from this new situation to quickly learn a model there. And that's kind of fundamentally what you want. Yeah. And the big question about is why that is. And, and I think there are some very interesting theory, perhaps that I haven't actually seen yet. Perhaps somebody actually should write that theory, or maybe I just haven't seen yet, but they just, because you're learning a different distribution, you can probably mathematically argue, well, that's, that must be an easier distribution to learn. And that is just because if you're learning a value function, a value function is something that's needed to make decisions in model three things, because you have to know what is the value of your actions, right? But a value function it is a function that tries to predict the cumulative future value of your actions. That is, if you take this action and then you keep acting into the, well, you keep acting all the way in the future, according to whatever your plan is currently, where your plan is not explicit, but it's just in your value function. The value function tells you how good this action is right now, but also how important is this action for achieving your objective at some point into the future. And that is a fundamentally an extremely hard problem because, well, now your value function is tasked with summarizing the entirety of the future for you in just a single forward pass of a neural network. And it just feels like if you instead try to summarize the entirety of the, of the future using a model by actually trying to predict the future, maybe that would be easier to learn than just kind of doing in a single forward pass. <laughs> I guess as a counter argument, you could say, well, why, why don't we just learn everything end to end and just trade a value function and that maybe that will give us everything already. And maybe that is true, but it does feel like the end-to-end way will fail precisely in this out-of-distribution situations, because if your value function is not trained to summarize the future in these out-of-distribution situations, it might not be as good at generalizing, whereas the model might be better at generalizing because perhaps the dynamics, meaning the, the, the dynamic, meaning the, the way the world evolves, the way the world operates, how does the world change when you take an action? That is just physics. That is the same in all situations. So perhaps you can learn a world model that is actually more generalizable than a value function that can be mm -hmm. extremely different for different situations because it, yeah. it doesn't just depend on how the world works. It depends on what your agent wants to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I, I don't know if I've ever seen this formalized or proved, but it certainly makes sense. And I think somebody actually, it feels like something you could do with some potentially large assumptions, but maybe even not those large assumptions. Yeah. I bet someone could do this. Yeah. It's also intuitively kind of interesting. Humans clearly do a thing, which is try to construct models of how the world works. And those models give us a lot of predictive power. And we do that in all sorts of situations, not just scientifically. Science is like the formalization of us constructing models for how the world works. But hey. it seems like humans, Alison Gopnik is this interesting child, an old psychologist, 
And she did a bunch of research and kind of posed this theory that children are generating hypotheses constantly and testing them just like scientists. The scientist in the equilibrate. That's a religious concept. Right. Exactly. Her observation is that these children are basically like constructing models constantly of what might happen and then testing like what actually does happen and then updating the model. So there is something to be said about what you said about models. What they're doing is isolating the dynamics of the world. And maybe that allows them to generalize yeah. better. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And I think that is actually extremely interesting in the sense that what you just mentioned and some of the arguments from her work is, well, a model is not just a way to adapt to a new situation. It's also a way to explore, right? And that is exactly kind of like the, well, that is what science does, right? You formulate a model, which is your, your hypothesis, and then you test your hypothesis, right? But to test your hypothesis, you first need to have a hypothesis, right? So what's your hypothesis? Well, that can be a model. You can construct some distribution over how you think the world might work. And then you can explore by evaluating all of these different hypotheses that you have from your distribution and keeping to update your distribution. And that's actually exactly the idea of plan to explore as well. Right? In plan to explore, yeah. <laughs> it sounds very familiar. <laughs> Do you want to get a little overview for other people that might not have run it necessarily? Just a quick summary of like the basic idea behind it. Yeah, absolutely. This is exactly the basic idea. Right? In plan to explore, we say, well, how do we define the model? We define it the way we usually define it in the enforcement learning. That is, the model is a distribution of the next state given the previous state and the action. So the state is the world state. And basically, the model tells you how the world evolves after your agent takes an action. So how do agents actually impact the world? And then, well, the idea of finding to explore is you want to construct a distribution of hypotheses of how the world might work. That is, what might be the true dynamics model? And then you would explore by collecting the most information about your distribution of hypotheses. So you would explore with information gain. And this idea really goes back to optimal experimental design, right? Like, the, In fact, the concept of information gain was introduced in this paper from, I think, 1956 or something that was specifically designed for optimal experiment design, right? So in, in the actual science, which experiments should you run to best learn about I don't know, what's the shape of your molecule? Well, you can figure out what's the best experiment by doing some kind of Bayesian inference, by, by constructing a prior over what you think might be the shape of your molecule, and then conducting an experiment that collapses the prior the most, that gives you the posterior that's essentially the most different from the prior. And then the difference between the posterior and the prior is the information gain, right? How much did you reduce the entropy of your posterior? <laughs> and you can use the same exact idea, and people have used it for many other things, including, I think, learning neural networks. Also back 30 years ago, there is a paper by David McKay, I think. And of course, there's a lot of work by Schmidt-Huber, who's famous for inventing everything. And in this case, he, he did actually invent, well, he reinvented this idea. The idea was really invented in 1956 because the idea is just experimental design. But Schmidt-Huber also thought about, well, can we use this for model-based reinforcement learning and can we use it to, well, to plan to explore, to, okay, so planning to explore is, requires you another thing, which optimal experimental design also has. Because the, well, so the first question is how do you explore? Well, you want to conduct an experiment that, maxim that gains, uh, gives you the most information of the model, about the model. The second question is, well, how do you know which experiment gives you the most information about the model? Well, you can use your model. And that's kind of a very funny idea, because if your model is wrong, well, why would you use your model to try to find out in which exact way it's wrong? But that's the only thing you can do. And, and that is exactly the concept of information gain, right? In information gain, you're evaluating your gain under your prior. So this does rely on having a good prior. That is, your model has to have calibrated uncertainty in the sense that in this new region, which it haven't seen yet, 
the model has to have a very uncertain distribution. It has to be able to tell you, well, I don't know what's going to happen if you apply this action and you go to this part of the state space, right? So if you've only ever been in the living room and you've never been to the kitchen and you tell your, and you just ask your model, what's going to happen if I go to the kitchen? It has to tell you, I don't know, right? So you, you wanted to tell you the uncertainty, but if your model has this property that it has good uncertainty estimation, you would be able to just query it. Well, what are the actions that cause, that cause the most uncertainty? Mm -hmm. And that is planning, right? That is using your model to come up with a trajectory of actions that leads to the highest uncertainty collapse of the model. Mm -hmm. So that there's planning for uncertainty, or as we call it in the paper, planning to explore. And then there are some details in the paper we implemented with kind of these things called world models, which learn a latent representation and the actual model is not, it, well, it, it learns the state of the world as a latent representation, as opposed to just saying, or oh, images are your state. So that's the slightly better way of doing that. And then it turns out that ensembles are the best way of measuring uncertainty that works reliably. So if you look at the uncertainty estimation literature, most people will tell you, well, ensembles are, so if you just train five different neural networks on exactly the same data, but you see initialize them differently and technically you have to train them on slightly different data, but in practice, it doesn't matter if you just initialize them differently, it works, works great. It's just, it, uh, mathematically, it, you have to train them on substance of your data, but in practice you don't. So that, that's kind of funny. So, so we didn't in the paper. I think that I had a question on is like, yes, mathematically you do need to, technically you don't, it seems to still work. I mean, how hard is it to train it on a subset of the data? Like it isn't really that hard, right? Just drop some of the things out of the batch for some of them. Yeah, really. we tried that. It, it just doesn't, doesn't really help. Just doesn't make any difference. Oh, it's interesting. Yeah, it doesn't, it, it seems that the initialization is really all you need. And I think I've removed the option from the code. I will probably try it at some point in the future and maybe once it helps, I will start using it. But I think I'm kind of like, in this case, I'm just being pragmatic, right? If, if it works, it works. Probably there's just no theory yet that explains it, but the theory in this case comes from, from bagging from the, what is it? Uh, bootstrap ensembles, right? The, the bootstrap predictors and mathematically, if you train them on different data, they will give you some variance that is actually the, the variance of your estimator. Yeah. <laughs> But I guess with neural networks, there's also some other mechanism that gives you variance. And that's interesting. So maybe we just don't know what the mechanism is. Would be really interesting to find out, but practically it already works. Yeah, so the overview, mm -hmm. you said basically that if the model has good uncertainty estimate, you can create a model for the uncertainty, for the actions that produce both uncertainty. And that's kind of the general idea. Just in the, you know, it's called plan to its core. Here, you're estimating this uncertainty. And then what actually is going on in the planning step? Like what's actually happening there? That's a great question. That's something that confuses people. What we call planning here is just the fact that you're using the model to come up with the, with the solution of how to best explore. Now, the way the solution works is still a policy. So we will use a model to train a closed loop controller. And the reason you want to do that is because if you just use a model to come up with a trajectory of actions, well. Now your trajectory is blind, right? Your agent is just going to execute that trajectory without adjusting for new evidence. Whereas if you come up with a controller, that's a much better idea because it's what's in control. This is called closed loop, right? Meaning you don't just blindly execute one action and then the other after that without looking at what actually happened. You execute one action and then you query your controller again. And so you can adjust for the new evidence for what happened after you actually executed this action. And that is particularly important. Well, that is in fact only important if you have uncertainty. If you have no uncertainty, you should just plan trajectory of actions and run it. If you have uncertainty, mm -hmm. if, if your model is not perfect, you should learn a controller because, uh, well, there are multiple different things that could happen. 
So what the controller allows you to do, it allows you to have a conditional plan. So it's, it's a plan that says, well, I'm going to do this action if I see this. I'm going to do a different action if I see this. This general concept is called background planning as opposed to decision time planning. Also because with this controller, you can come up with it in the background. And then once you have the controller, you don't need to plan anymore. Then you just run your controller. Yeah, I guess at like a high level, thinking about that as a strategy, like one make up missing something, but like in cases where you want to explore, I'm like thinking about as a human, like, oh, I want to explore the world. Often I want to like, maybe that selection for kind of difficult to get to and then do something. Because like my uncertainty is about like what happens in this rare state where I wonder, like, do you end up in those rare states with this? Like if you just train this policy or would it make sense to have one that's like paper that you have afterwards, like so where you have an achiever or an explorer, like it does, does it sort of make sense to like first achieve or first get yourself somewhere and then explore? Or is it fine just to have this, you're always exploring. You just have this explorer policy that just works out. Right. That's really interesting. Right. So could you, so you, essentially you're talking about go explore. So where you first kind of like go to some yeah. interesting part of the state space that's around the frontier and then you explore from there. That is something I'm extremely interested in for sure. In uh, plan to explore, we just said, well, what's your exploration objective? Well, it's to maximize the novelty. And then we're going to come up with a trajectory that maximizes the novelty. So that's a very simple formalism because you're just saying, well, I want a trajectory where if I sum the novelty of all states, that novelty of the entire trajectory is maximum. And the reason we use the sum is because, well, that's something that reinforcement learning allows you to do, right? The sums are a particularly nice concept because you can actually train a value function, train a, a, a policy and all of this stuff. There are a lot of existing mechanisms for maximizing the sum of some objective for a trajectory. And then there's not really a place in this formalism to have an achiever because, well, if you, how does going to some place first help you maximize the sum of, of the novelty of the entire trajectory? Well, in fact, it might hurt you because, well, maybe, maybe you also need to explore in the way you go to some place, right? Like maybe you have a really powerful goal reaching agent that can reach all of the states that you already know, but maybe it only knows one way to reach all of these states. And you, maybe you will want to explore even the known region because you want to explore and find a better way to reach the goals you've already seen. And so that's, I guess, the intuition why you want to maximize the novelty of the entire trajectory and not just like the later half of the trajectory. But of course, in practice, it might be that this kind of structure where you only maximize the novelty of the later half of the trajectory and the first half, you would just go to some place that you think is promising. In practice, that might work really well. And in some special environments, especially in the multi-stage environments, right? Like what if your task is, I don't know, open the drawer and they then take something out of the drawer. Well, then you would really benefit from always first opening the drawer once you have learned how to do that and only then exploring. So I think that's a extremely promising trick. Yeah, I'm very interested in that for sure. What can I say? Stay tuned. Yeah. Okay. Great. <laughs> Finding better, better ways of opening the door. It's learning, but like not the kind of learning that I had human and that interested in, right? Like, aha, I've gotten point one seconds better opening the drawer. Hey, and those are, yeah, I can open it, you know? <laughs> well, uh, you'd be surprised, but the third pair of sports based on the, <laughs> not very fast. In fact, your sports are like that. So I think. That's true. I, I get that I'm saying for, for most humans though, like we're usually not up, like so much effort into optimizing that piece, right? Uh, like, you know, yeah, a sport is very much like golf. Like you're just like getting super good at this one swing or karate or all sorts of sport, but getting really good at this one action. But most of the time we learn to do things just, or at least I learn to do things just badly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that I think is extremely interesting because that I think is fundamentally the difference actually between model three and model-based thinking. And a lot of our current agents are kind of. I shouldn't say model three, I should say they're specialists, right? 
which is they, they can do one thing really, really well. So presumably current model, current RL will be really good at sports. If, if we just had robots that can do sports, which we don't really, but mm -hmm. if we had robots and enough data and we had some caretakers to actually watch the robots so that they don't fall during training and don't kill them, <laughs> well, don't damage themselves, presumably that's something we would already be able to do. But how do you get to the point where you can learn everything, but not very well, something that, that humans are really good at. Right? Once we're in a new situation, we, we know how to get to our goal. We know how to achieve our objective. We're probably extremely suboptimal, but at least we get it done. Right. I have to code a lot every day. I, I know everything about getting things done poorly, but getting them done. Just... <laughs> <laughs> like a true research scientist. Right. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get from Plan to Explore to Lexa? Okay. Yeah, sure. Uh, I did want to talk about that. Absolutely. And I guess Lexa, Lexa is the paper I'm currently most excited about. And the way I think about it is just, it's a scaled up version of Plan to Explore that kind of fixes some of the issues. If we put it another way, Plan to Explore is just a way to explore, but it doesn't actually give you everything that you wanted. It, it gives you a way to explore without any supervision. Mm -hmm. But what would be much better is if you had a fully unsupervised agent. And this is this, it's a slightly crazy idea, which is the idea is that, well, if you have a robot and you want this robot to learn skills, what if you just leave this robot alone for a bit? And it learns all of the skills it can by itself. So you, you don't tell it which skills to learn. It just kind of does everything by itself. And the reason this is a powerful idea is because, well, first, that's a very scalable way of doing things because you don't actually need a human watching the robot. Well, you should probably have a human watching the robot, but at least you don't need a human telling the robot what to do. So you don't need anybody thinking, oh, I, I want my robot to learn this and this skill. I'm going to design a reward function that causes it to learn this particular skill, or I'm going to give it to demonstrations that make it understand that it has to learn this particular skill. No, instead you just make the robot learn all of the skills without supervision. And that, that's even better than learning any particular skill because well, now you have a robot that can achieve presumably a wide range of skills and yeah. designing reward functions or demonstrations, which is the usual way you would make robots learn skills for a thousand skills would be pretty challenging. And for demonstrations, you would just need somebody who can stand next to the robot and, and knows how to operate the, the collaboration interface or something like that. For a reward function, you actually need a software engineer who knows how to use the code and who will go in and spend several days, maybe a week, actually tweaking the reward function until it actually works. So this is actually an extremely challenging problem, kind of just supervising the robot to tell it what to do. And so we thought, well, what if we could just remove all of that and you could have the agent learn all of the skills? And that way you, could, you can learn many more skills that you would ever be able to learn without both that you would ever be able to learn in the supervised way. So you learn all of the skills that are possible. And then in practice, what that means is in this Lexa work, we just kind of use plan to explore, to explore the environment, because that's the first big problem. You have to learn all of these skills. So you need to collect the data that actually tell you which skills are possible. And then we just learn a second policy that learns to execute all of these skills. And we just say, well, the formalist problem is what is a skill? How do you even define skills if there's no human to define skills? We just take the simple solution and we say every image that you have seen is going to be a skill. And so you're going to train your robot to achieve every image that it has seen. So if, if, if it has seen an image of the drawer being open or the cabinet being open, or so we evaluated in the, this kitchen environment, which is basically a robotic manipulation arm mm -hmm. placed in a kitchen. I, don't, I guess it's pretty dystopian actually, because it also takes a lot of space. So there's certainly no space for a human to also operate in that kitchen. I guess <laughs> this environment, but that the robot would presumably operate the kitchen fully and there will be no humans, which we <laughs> don't have. But maybe we can actually you know, get there at some point. 
And maybe one way to get there is to have the, the robot at least learn something about the physical environment itself, learn to operate all of the devices by just trying things out without any supervision in terms of without anybody telling you what the robot should actually do, right? And so if you have seen a, an image of you know, the plate being in the microwave, there's no plate in the environment, you could put a plate, then this Lexa agent would practice to achieve that goal image. So it would practice taking the plate from wherever it is and putting it in the microwave. And the tasks that actually are in the environment and the tasks that actually does are things like opening the burner, turning on the light, opening the cabinets, and it can actually do it pretty well. And it, it's really interesting to me because it's a fairly diverse environment in the sense that at least it has seven different things that the robot can do. Most RL environments have just one thing. There's a block and you need to put this block on top of another block and that's your task. But here there are at least seven different objects, which is you know, seven times more than one. And at least our agent learns about four or five of them. So it's not the full thing, but it learns tasks that are a lot more diverse than these kind of standard single task RL things. Yeah, it was very interesting. And definitely if people are listening, I would recommend checking out the website because I think it has some very good images. The animations are, are very fun to watch the little like Roma Yoga guide. Oh yeah, that was my favorite, my favorite so, Rolo Yoga. <laughs> that was fun. <laughs> it was very fun. That's how we... Yeah, that's how you found me. Yeah, those tasks were extremely fun. I've, I had a lot of fun making them actually. It's really interesting to see the robot try Doing them, it's a little tricky because you have to find a pose that is actually doable for the robot because mm -hmm. this this simple simulated robot. Well, it can do a lot of stuff, but you have to come up with a pose that is actually physically plausible. So mm -hmm. that th that was the biggest challenge in making them. But it's actually a lot of fun because you you can just probe this agent to try to do a new thing because it learns to do everything. So mm -hmm. it's a fully unsupervised agent. The actual so yeah, we tested it on this kind of walker agent, which is similar to a humanoid, but it's like a very, very simple humanoid with a an ant robot, which is, it's called an ant. It's actually a quadruped. It only has four legs in the kitchen environment. And you can achieve a wide range of kind of poses for the locomotion agent and manipulate different objects for manipulation. But it doesn't, if you just go to the website and you see what the agent does, well, those are just the test goals. Those are just the goals that I as a human selected. I was like, well, once I have the agent, I will ask it to solve, to achieve this goal. I will ask it to, to stand that pose or move this object. But the robot never knew that it was supposed to learn that. The robot just learns everything. And that is, I think, a, a really powerful concept because essentially in the process of designing these goals, I was discovering what my agent can do. I didn't even know what my agent can do. I was just probing this agent by showing it different goals and trying to figure out, well, which ones can it do and which ones it cannot do. So I feel like that's a really interesting way of operating a robot where you're not just designing a reward function and telling it exactly what to do. It's just learning by itself. And then you're just probing what it can do. And if it can do something useful, then you're going to use that. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting. Huh. I wonder if you can either like probe or optimize in a particular way, like rather than you having to hand them and try them, like, can you ask the agent like, oh, find sort of unstable states or like weird states that you haven't visited that often, or just like show you a bunch of states as a way of like generating ideas for yourself about which things would be good test tasks. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. So just somehow have an automatic way of creating interesting test tasks. <laughs> yeah, I haven't thought of that. That would be cool. And certainly you could optimize for, well, if you had a way to measure instability, in our case, the agent works just directly from images. So that doesn't actually perceive instability other than through the image. 
And that's just because we, we've decided that's going to be a slightly harder task for our agent. So we just removed proprioception. It's a very unrealistic setting because why would you not, like usually as a human, you feel where your leg is, right? Like you, you don't need to look at it to know where it is. But we've just decided, well, this agent is going to be really hardcore. It's not going to feel its leg. It's only going to see it. But if you had proprioception, presumably it would be pretty easy to, yeah, just kind of optimize for lowest stability. Yeah. And then, yeah, I'm imagining like, it's, it's sort of more fun, you know, with carpool or something to like try and make the thing stay on right. the top. It's really hard. Yeah. And so that, or like with 3D carpool, it's almost, it's like very, very difficult as a human to do this. And so it's almost fun to think about like, can men agent sort of try and get themselves in these really hard, weird situations? Because it's just so much more challenging. Because there's plenty of ways to like plop yourself on the ground that look different, right? Aren't that hard to get to. I would say that's something that's, that I really enjoyed very much over the course of both of these projects and some other ones is just looking at the exploration videos. So not even at the goal achieving videos, but just what plan to explore does itself. Because what it does, well, it tries to find the weirdest possible trajectory. Uh, <laughs> and the trajectories that it finds are pretty weird. I think I have some of them on the website, definitely have them in the video, but it does a lot of interesting stuff. I, I imagine, I don't actually remember right now, but I imagine for a card fall, it would, act, well, okay. What I do remember is it kind of, it swings really wildly for a card fall, but it, it does so in the most random way possible. If you just do random things, you're not going to get a very random result because you're, you know, if it's a walker, it's just kind of, and it does random things, it's kind of just going to be twitching on the floor, right? Like it's not actually going to get anywhere. But what this agent does is it does the most random thing possible, right? So for the walker, it just spins around uncontrollably, right? Like it just does a series of really wild backflips. And the same thing for quadruped. The quadruped is particularly hilarious because it's this, well, the agent with four legs and essentially it's breakdancing. It, it, it keeps switching between really, really wild poses and also flipping periodically. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah. The, that is something that you would definitely have to watch out for on the real robot. You you would have to make sure it's kind of it's a little more calm than that. But it is interesting how effective this kind of exploration mechanism is at actually finding really unexpected trajectories, essentially, right? Like the trajectories for which presumably you're probably at the limits of the simulator. You're you're almost trying to break the simulator. Maybe that's why it finds these trajectories, is because mm -hmm. it, it's kind of it doesn't know what the simulator is gonna do. Yeah. One other question I had on Lexa, this notion of like, okay, you want to get to the state, right? It comes from this image. You show an image of like, okay, I want to get to the state. But in the kitchen example, it's not always like as a person that we're trying to get to this image, a state, right? Like there's other parts of the world that are sort of more important to us, right? Like if you have an image, which is like an egg, which is nicely cooked on a frying pan versus like everything else in the kitchen is the same, but there's no cooked egg. Like I really care about the egg being cooked. If you just put everything else in the same spot and there's no cooked egg. It's like, well, this is not a very good robot chef. Right. And so there's like some information that's much more important in these pixels than other information. Right. Like attention. Yeah. So I was just wondering if you had any sort of thoughts around like that kind of stuff, like this expression of goals as like right now, it's just like this compressed version of your image. That's great as a world state, but can you imagine like different types of world states? Like maybe you're optimizing just to change one particular property of the world or some other sort of representation, how you change the written representation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So you're right that specifying the goal as an image is kind of fundamentally, well, maybe it's not the right way to specify the goal actually, right? Because, well, what if your goal is not an image in the first place? What if it's something else? What if it's a more abstract concept? Mm -hmm. So the image might not contain 
well, the image might contain too, too much information. It might sure. be that not all of the parts of the image are important, but also the image can contain, um, might not contain enough information, right? If it's an image of a closed drawer and your goal is to you know, clean up the kitchen, well, presumably all of the plates have to be in the, in the drawer, but that's not in the image. So, you know, maybe your robot will just throw all of the plates in the trash bin and that will achieve the right <laughs> So that's not, certainly that's right. It's not a perfect way to specify goals. To me, that's not really a problem we looked into yet. So I think it's an extremely interesting problem, right? Like how do we actually communicate interesting goals to the agent? Mm-hmm. In this lecture of work, we were just kind of interested in, in the first place, can we learn an agent that can achieve a multitude of different goals? And we just thought, well, images seems like a pretty reasonable way of doing that, especially for manipulation tasks, where you kind of just need to rearrange the objects in a particular pattern. Ultimately, you want some more latent goals. So maybe your goals would just have to be some kind of features and only the important features. It would actually be perhaps not so hard to implement that because we already have a latent space. And maybe if your latent space is good enough, your goal would just specify a particular feature of that latent space. And you would only care about that particular feature. So that would be one way you could try to do that. I'm not sure that will quite give you everything because ultimately, if you care about a certain task, you will need to train your latent space for that particular task, right? Like if you just really, really care about the egg being cooked and your robot can never taste the egg, well, it it won't know whether it's cooked or not because it it doesn't have any way to verify that. So you would have to somehow have a special way of making sure that your latent space actually contains that feature. That does depend on the robot's experience. The more experience the robot has, the better. And, and certainly, as the robot does have a lot more experience, maybe it will be able to, the latent space will become richer. And I guess the other thing here is language. Ultimately, I think we should be moving towards language and actually telling the robot what to do and having the robot do it, as in just telling it in, in English or whatever other language. We're not quite there yet. There's some work on that. There's a lot of very exciting recent work on that. I would say all of the work on that right now is very researchy, even for research standards. Basically, it, the kind of research I wouldn't even use myself, and I only do research, right? So, <laughs> I know, I know what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> so, it, it's not something that anybody at a company would apply. Although, curious that some of this work is actually being done at companies because they want to produce the most impressive demo. The, the impressive demos is that you have language. But I feel like we're not quite there yet, even in the sense of well, how do we formulate the problem? What is the kind of data we need to train the robot like that? Where do we get the language data? Perhaps somebody just needs to collect a huge data set of that, or maybe we somehow leverage the internet. So just collect all of the data from the internet. I think all of these are basically unsolved questions. I, I don't really know how that's going to turn out. I do think perhaps in a couple of years, we will have agents that can, well, we at least will have the right formulation for how do we learn language conditioned agents. Meaning, how do we specify tasks via language? We're not really there yet. The obvious thing to say, if you ask that to anybody else, they would probably say you the same thing. You should probably use something like Clip, which is, I'm just saying the name because perhaps everybody would have seen it by now. It's this language image model from OpenAI that can look at an image and understand what is in that image. And so if we can, could just use that for robotics, we could just say, well, find me a Coke can. And then this robot would use clip to ground the words Coke can in the image. And it would be able to just go and find the Coke can because it would find the latent space. So the way clip works is there is a language latent space and an image latent space. And it would embed the language in the latent space and find the image that matches that language in the latent space. A bit of pun trivia is that I've tried that. 
And I'm fairly sure it doesn't work yet with current models that have been released by OpenAI. And in fact, a lot of other people have tried that and nobody has gotten it to work. Because if, if anybody had gotten it to work, I would know, because they would presumably immediately write a paper about that. So there's still something missing in that idea. I don't know what though. And uh, yeah, I guess that's, uh, I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's an idea donated to the community. If, if anybody can make this work, if anybody knows what's missing from Clip to make this work, I'd be really, you know, I, I imagine people will figure it out in the, in the next couple of years, but I don't know when, and I don't know how. One issue right now is there aren't really any good tasks that would force something like Clip to understand spatial relations. Like Clip doesn't become more impressive or understand relations at the moment. One thought that I think we had around this grammar-ish thing, like they were we mm-hmm. grammar that maybe it would force large or it would like force people to work on models that would learn spatial relations. Well, it doesn't even need to be a like super limited construction grammar. You can take things that are from this grammar and turn them into more natural, more varying languages, right? Where you can say, put the red block on top of the blue block, put this block on top of that block. Like you can kind of allow it to be a more natural expression of them. Yeah. Without, without breaking it fully. I don't know uh, if that solves the problem. Or doing task conditional learning. Yeah. Like that's the, really only have a few time. Right. The point is like, you can make a simulated data set of all sorts of spatial relations and force it to learn things about like, net, <laughs> et cetera. Yeah. I think to me, fundamentally, the problem here is learning from the internet. So like, I don't really believe, like people have been doing language condition tasks for a very long, like what, probably like 50 years now, more than that. When was this third thing? I don't know how to pronounce it, but the first, <laughs> oh, yeah. the, the first program with language was like a really long time ago. And, and so we can already do that, right? Like we don't need reinforcement learning to do that. In fact, we, I think the code for that must still be around. Maybe you can just download and run it. But I think the big question is, can you actually do it in open world language, right? Like, can you just have a human say anything they want to a robot and have the robot respond by, well, solving the task? And I suspect maybe the answer to that is simple. Maybe we just need a much bigger clip model. Maybe if OpenAI just trained a clip model that's like 20 times bigger, maybe that would learn the spatial relations. Or maybe it has to be a little different. Maybe it has to be something else that's not that particular architecture they have. Maybe it has to be a little smarter. But I suspect it's something that's not actually our fault. That it's not my fault as a reinforcement learning person. It's actually the fault of the person who designed clip. Because I think fundamentally the right way of doing that is to train some model on internet scale data. And maybe that means that you know, as a reinforced learning person, I just have to go and, and train this internet scale model myself if nobody else is going to be training it for me. That's another point that I wanted to touch on. <laughs> Where should our role move? And I think generally in our role, we should move towards training things on internet scale data. We, we should be restricted to kind of like the simple environments that we have. I would really, really like to see people in reinforcement learning actually working on large-scale image language models, because I think fundamentally that's the style of reinforcement learning research we should be moving to. And that's the style of reinforcement learning research that's really exciting to me personally as well. How can we get closer towards generalization and the way you get generalization as well, you try on the most diverse data set possible. Well, that's one way of getting general, just to push back on that for a second. That's one way of getting generalization, right? I mean, I have not read all the Wikipedia or seen all the images online and I'm still able to generalize a much better way, right? So maybe there's another alternative path there as well. I think yes, but also there is also a question of, well, how do you evaluate your agent? Do you evaluate your agent on, and this is something you've mentioned before, right? Like do you just, maybe one way to do RL would be to just look at two environments and see what kind of structure is needed for RL to learn well in these two environments. 
And maybe you would also look at data efficiency, right? Like, uh, can you get generalization in these two environments? But the problem with that is, and always was, well, how do you know that the same things are needed for the actual applications of RL? Because the actual applications of RL will not be, you know, having a robot stack a blue block on top of a, a red block. That's something that the roboticists have been doing for 50 years, but that's not actually a task that anybody cares about. People care about something that's much more practical. And in particular, we don't even know what the applications of reinforcement learning will be, because certainly factory robots, it might not make a lot of sense to train factory robots with reinforcement learning, although there are some people doing that and very successfully, but maybe that's not the biggest application of reinforcement learning. Presumably the biggest application of learning will be robots that are more general. They're more general than any kind of robots we have right now. So it might be hard for us to even imagine what these robots might look like. We've seen some things in the movies, but those are hard to believe on. So we, we don't really know what's going to happen. But if reinforcement learning will be useful, it presumably will be useful in a way that creates new robotic industries, creates new types of robots that we don't have right now, that can do things we don't have right now. And presumably the specific way in which that will happen, if it will happen, would be by having more general robots. And then that means that we have to test our algorithms on very general situations. Mm-hmm. On situations we cannot solve with existing techniques. And so I think fundamentally, just in terms of good experimental practices, I strongly believe in not testing on toy environments. Toy environments are useful. I'm tired of bullying on board, but I'm pointing is I think one thing that I don't really like about some RL and even about like the really large language models is you're effectively testing generalization or you're testing your thing on trait. Like if you're playing Atari, play a game and you get good at the game, you're testing out trait, like the method of generalization, right? And the same thing with a large language model. If you see all language ever created, it's not really generalization because you're like, oh, it's in the same distribution, right? But I think I love testing on natural data and lots of things, but training on that is kind of, it seems hard to make a claim about generalization mm-hmm. if you're trained on all the data because now your distribution hasn't shifted. Listen, well, I would say that this is a very optimistic point of view because then you're just saying, well, we just need to train on all of the internet and then we don't even care about generalization. We're done. Although we do point in the generalization is outside of things, things that are not currently written on the internet as in things that will happen in the future, right? Mm-hmm. Like the point is first, we think that we're doing a good job because all the data that we have in our test set, oh, we're doing so good on this. Yes, but as soon as the world changes, oh, now it's not working. Oh, well, we just need to train it on even more new updated data. Well, <laughs> Or we can train it on a subset of data and hope that we saw good performance on all the data, right? I think that's a really interesting point. A counterpoint to that would be that I'm trained on a lot of the data from the internet because I'm, I'm kind of, I, I lived with the internet my entire life mostly, well, most of it. And I don't really understand TikTok already. So TikTok is outside of my kind of generalization abilities. I think there are some things that, like, if, if we're talking about generalization to the future, I don't know if humans do that well either. I feel like humans very much overfit to like their particular subset of experience. Maybe when you say you don't understand TikTok, I think you mean something slightly different, right? And you understand <laughs> happening in the video, but you don't understand why another person would want to watch it. But that is a form of generalization. Like, you know, a child who grew up on TikTok would generalize better TikTok in, in that they would understand what's going on. Like they would be able to derive roles for it more effectively. I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, so, so I think it's, an, it's a very academic debate. And certainly, perhaps we care about generalization. I, I mean, certainly we care about generalization. But if our robots are going to be trained on the entire internet, and if we train a robot on the entire internet and it works, I will be very happy with that. I think I could see how to some people it might seem 
I mean, yeah, these are the standard arguments, right? Like you, if you're doing that, you're not really doing science, et cetera, et cetera. It's just engineering and it's just kind of like throwing the biggest model at it. Well, yeah, if you're working at a company, perhaps you're not doing science. But an interesting thing about Clip is that the algorithm with which it was trained was designed in, I believe, 2019. Of course, Jeff Hinton wrote a paper about it 10 years or I don't know, maybe 30 years before that. Uh, somebody else must have written papers even before that as well. But the actual new wave of using this algorithm in kind of the, and I'm talking about contrastive learning, started, I believe, in 2019, if I'm remembering this correctly now. It was also done at the company, but it was done at fairly small scale. And so I think there are big algorithmic challenges still in kind of just figuring out what needs to be done so that we can even train at that scale. And I also think fundamentally, these challenges are particularly pronounced in reinforcement learning, where we've never trained any agents on that scale. So, we, so yeah. presumably all of our algorithms will fail if we try to. I think there's a lot of work in front of us just in the sense of coming up with the algorithms that are scalable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's actually one of the things that's most interesting about like Lexa or some of this other unsupervised RL stuff is that it's at least a first hint towards a thing that like, oh, okay, if you let this keep training for a really long time on its own, you would hope that it would get better. Whereas a lot of other RL things just have one reward function, like you'll get better in the sense that you're doing better at that reward, but you're not really discovering new states or improving a world model, et cetera. Let me ask a clarification. Actually, the argument was, well, presumably we want to Kind of evaluate generalization in a simple set. So maybe we we'll start with a simple setting, then hopefully it generalizes to a, to a more complex setting as well. But we kind of want to specifically evaluate generalization. And presumably the way we will then be able to con- construct algorithms that generalize better is by coming up with some kind of clever structure in your algorithm. Is that what you wanted to say? It doesn't necessarily need to be clever structure. It's more that we know we have like a proof by existence of people seeing like the amount of Data that you see, and even in just terms of like raw audio and video, is just not that much <laughs> by the time that you're able to speak, right? It's actually very, very small in terms of the number of mm-hmm. bytes. And so we know that we can learn a whole bunch of things. And then the amount of generalization you can do is just crazy compared to the amount of generalization. Mm-hmm. Like extrapolate to all these other things that you never see. We know we have this like power, of, like such a system can be created. Right. That seems worthwhile to do. It's also worthwhile to train on this huge thing and take the normal distribution, but something feels a little bit wrong. Not that we're not doing science, but it feels a little bit dangerous because what we're saying is like, yes, everything works now, but tomorrow we have no guarantees because the distribution is <laughs> in the world. Whereas with the other one, like, well, we already know that it is robust to like huge distributional shifts and generalize very far. And so we would hope that mm. tomorrow it works. <laughs> I see. So you're saying if I see a new app on my phone, like TikTok, I don't just throw my phone in the trash. I still don't know how to right. operate it, presumably. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think that's an interesting point. And maybe that's because I have a model of my phone. So I know that uh, yeah. it could have any apps and, and yeah. maybe models would be one way of doing that. But I also feel like this is touching on a more general point that I wanted to talk about, which is, and I guess in general, I, I do feel this is where I would actually disagree with your statement. And uh, okay, let me clarify. I will disagree with the spirit of your st- statement. I, yeah. I think on paper, Everything you say is, is is correct, but I feel like this sentiment that you're expressing is that well, we need better generalization. The most pressing problem in reinforcement learning is better generalization. So let's let's just figure out what's wrong with our algorithm. How do we get more generalization? And it just kind of feels to me. So a funny thing about me is that I come from a computer vision lab, as I already said, and as for these like five years of my PhD, I was seeing a lot of people work on computer vision, and I was seeing these huge debates. Oh, do we need structure in computer vision? Do our models need to understand 3D? Do our models need to be compositional? And then mm. to me, it feels like 
all of these structure people have essentially completely lost in computer vision. There are still some models that have some structure, but you also don't need it. If you, if you just train a huge transformer, it will solve all of your computer vision tasks. It's likely that a single transformer can quite literally solve every single computer vision task that has an open source data set if you just train a transformer that's big enough. And that, that's something that Google is working on. If you read some of their recent releases, they're really interested in that. Also, a computer vision task in this sense, like... Our classification of uh, semantic image understanding, right? So given an image, what is in that image? And I think there's a lot of value in investigating structure. And in fact, I think perhaps the main reason a huge transformer will work on all of these tasks is because a transformer actually has a lot of structure, even though it has less structure than a convolutional neural network, but a convolutional neural network still works on all of these tasks as well. And that has a lot of structure for sure. It has locality, it has modularity in the sense of hierarchy, it, it, it constructs layers of features. And that's an extremely important kind of structure. If, if you don't construct these hierarchies of features, you will get nowhere. And transformers still does that, right? So transformers still construct hierarchies of features. So that's a very important piece of structure that we've discovered. And maybe we'll discover some other pieces of structure. And I think that's extremely important to work on. A lot of people are excited about sparsity. I haven't seen any large-scale demonstrations of sparsity being useful, but that seems like one that's reasonable. And sparsity does give you something like compositionality, as well as hierarchy, right? The hierarchy also does give you something like compositionality. So maybe if your transformer is just large enough, because of the way it's structured, things will actually fall in place compositionally, right? So I think perhaps even the reason we are seeing these huge advances in computer vision is exactly because the structure we already have in these models mm -hmm. gives us the structure that we want if we just train it on a large enough data set. Of course, if you train it on a small data set, it will not learn that structure. Right? Mm -hmm. But if we just design a model such that gradient descent uh, finds a particularly structured solution on a large data set, maybe that's all we need, right? And there's a lot of theory work on that, right? There is a lot of theory that tells you, well, the stochastic gradient descent actually gives you generalizable solutions. It, it, it finds the tropic optimum, which are more generalizable, but also it finds the closest optimum um, mm. to your initial point. So it, it, it does not find an optimum that has a very high magnitude, right? So it kind of finds a simple optimum in, in that sense, just by the virtue of having gradient descent as your optimization algorithms. So perhaps this kind of structure is already extremely powerful, but then of course, it's not going to work if your data set is very simple. If your data set is very simple, you can overfit to whatever you want and you won't generalize. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm deeply suspicious of evaluating on toy data sets is because it just feels like there is some magic of deep learning that is just lost on toy data sets. Somehow these models do not generalize on toy data sets. They do generalize on large data sets. Mm -hmm. And so to me, fundamentally, I think where we need to get in a row is we need to get out of this regime of overfitting toy data set and we need to get more towards actually train it in a huge data set. And maybe if we do that, already we will see generalization even outside that training data set, right? If you train a model on ImageNet, it generalizes to many other things that are not on ImageNet. In fact, you can use it for pretty much any task, really. You cannot use it for medical images or things like that, but you can take a picture with your phone. It will be very different from ImageNet pictures because those are taken from Google. The images that Google shows you are usually taken with a professional camera, so they will look very different from whatever you take with your phone. But if you train a model in image, it still works in the picture from your phone. So it actually has pretty impressive generalization. And I think that that's a huge divide between RL now and where RL needs to be, which is that we're not even looking at the right problems. We yeah. somehow need to figure out, well, how do we actually get our data sets to the scale? And the scale here means diversity. Mm -hmm. To the scale, meaning diversity, that's large enough so that we can actually see some of this magic. Uh, and simple things like you can train on 50 different Atari games together. Well, that's not going to give you generalization. You might generalize to the 51st Atari game, 
but maybe not. Maybe actually you won't. Right? I, I highly suspect that 50 different examples won't let you generalize to a 51st example. <laughs> you probably need thousands of different examples. You would need to train this agent on a thousand of different environments. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't know how to do that. Somebody would need to create that data set. If we don't have the data set, we're just speculating. But I also think, I mean, that's something that everybody obviously talks about, that this kind of like data-driven offline RL kind of stuff. But I also deeply believe as a person coming from computer vision, that just feels right to me. And the reason that feels right is because in computer vision, I saw a lot of the methods being developed on simple data sets that mm-hmm. do not scale to more complex data sets. It, it's extremely common. Five years ago at CDR, you would see a lot of data sets evaluating on SUFAR or MNIST. And then these methods never went anywhere. They never worked on any harder data sets. And so people don't use them anymore. And I feel like we might just be in the same trap in RL where we're just, whatever we are designing right now, not going to work unless we test it on the pre-existing scale that we care about. Yeah, interesting. I think I definitely agree with that. But I guess one question that I have for that, and I think that you're right, like this will certainly help with generalization if we're using these really large pre-trained models, et cetera. But one question is like, for RL in particular, like how do you actually get the training data? Because RL kind of requires interaction with the environment. And interacting with the real world is sort of expensive and dangerous. Like we don't necessarily want to make a bunch of robots that are doing self-driving cars and like collecting yeah. by crafting, et cetera. Right. So like how do we actually collect data in, in that world? And like, what are the tasks? What are the, like the rewards and the thing that right. they is trying to do? And that I think is the key question. So if I, if I knew to answer <laughs> the answer to that, I, you know, I wouldn't be sitting here. I would be working on, on uh, making that answer happen. <laughs> I could just say, oh, you know, we run Lexa, right? We just run Lexa for a really long time and that collects the data set. I feel like that's not the final answer. I don't know what's the final answer. Some other thing that I've thought of and I actually just wanted to mention quickly is, well, maybe we just learn from the internet. Now, how do we learn from the internet? You can actually learn something about how to act from the internet, right? You don't just have to learn the language grounding in the clip case. The internet also has video and videos fundamentally have dynamic information. This dynamic information can help you. What can it help you with? Well, Maybe it can help you for planning. If it, maybe you can learn a dynamics model on videos from the internet. And if you train it on the entire internet, it will be a very generalizable dynamics model. It will tell you how the world evolves in all possible situations. You could train it on the entire YouTube or you can train it on the set of all movies ever taken. And then if you think about it, how do we humans learn, right? Like the entire reason YouTube exists is actually so that we can experience something that's not our personal experience, right? So we, we, we could share experience with each other. So share experience with each other, we film a video and we upload it on YouTube. And then that way we enrich the amount of information that we have. We enrich our experience by using other people's experience. And of course, before YouTube, there were also other ways of doing that. Usually, we, I guess you would just talk about some event, but maybe you witnessed some event with your own eyes and you saw somebody getting killed by a lion and you know, well, okay, lion bad, right? That could be a very effective way of learning. And now we don't have to do that. Now we can watch movies, which yeah. might also have a lion killing somebody, but now it's fake. So that, that's a little better because at least it's a little safer for the actors. <laughs> and that is still speculative, right? We don't have that right now. If we just train a current dynamics model on YouTube, it, it's going to fail dramatically. It's, it's not at that scale. And that's exactly what I'm talking about, right? We need to design much better algorithms that can handle that data. We already have the data. It's just on the internet, but we don't have the algorithms. If I can plug my own paper, uh, one yeah. interesting issue with YouTube is that it doesn't have actions. And remember that a dynamics model doesn't just tell you how the world evolves, but it tells you how the world evolves in response right. to the agent's actions. And so you kind of have right. to figure out this algorithmical challenge where, well, if you just saw something happened, how do you translate that 
into an experience you can internalize, how to kind of ground that into possible actions that you can take. I have this paper that I wouldn't say it was completely ignored. It's like the, the, there's a couple of people who know it and, and some people who cited it, but it's actually very fair that most people have ignored it just because it doesn't actually do this thing that I said it doesn't train on YouTube. It's a paper called Learning What You Can Do Before Doing Anything. And it's just this particular problem. Well, if you have a data set that doesn't have actions, how do you still train a dynamics model? And the answer is, well, you just train a latent variable model. You can use unsupervised learning and you can just use essentially probabilistic learning with the deep neural networks. That is, you can formulate your graphical model and your action is just latent. And now, well, luckily we have a lot of methods for training latent variable models. So you can actually train this model, even though your action is latent. And in particular, you can train it with variational inference. Yes, we don't have time to get into that. But there's actually a cool sort of probabilistic math at figuring out how to learn a latent action representation from passive videos that don't have any actions. I, I cannot claim it's a great paper because I've never tested it on YouTube. Some other PhD student at Penn, Carl Schmuckweber, actually tested it on a list of human behaviors, of human manipulation that, that I and Anishia, who's now at Stanford, collected. So it's, this data set contains two humans, me and Annie. And you can actually see that using this method, you can improve robotic manipulation a little bit in the sense that you can learn a dynamics model from humans by kind of like doing this latent action representation inference. And that I think is pretty cool. But it's still not at the right scale. I think what needs to be done is to train a dynamics model on YouTube. And perhaps the answer to that would contain in some form this kind of latent action inference, because this to me is an example of an algorithmic question that is currently unsolved in the sense that there is this this paper of mine, but we don't know whether it actually scales. So maybe we need a different algorithm, but also maybe the paper is actually fine. I think the theory is solid, just the experiments are not there yet. And so that you feel like it's your most overlooked paper. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think perhaps it is. And for a very good reason, it just, if you open the paper and you look at the experiments, you will start questioning why did I even write a paper with these experiments? Because it obviously doesn't work on any harder tasks, but you know, maybe it actually does. Maybe I just couldn't get it to work back then, but maybe something else is required to get it to work on harder tasks in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, you you point about how the structure people have kind of lost to the giant transformers in computer vision. How do you think about that? Well, I just wanted to mention that I think they lost way before that. I think they really lost with ResNet. Really, they lost the first time with AlexNet and then again with ResNet and then again now with Transformers. So I just, I feel like in the deep learning era, they've been kind of consistently losing. And what I mean by that is that there are some people that don't believe in the structure that is already in CNNs and they they think that some kind of very different structure is needed. And I think it might be true, but when you're designing the structure, you have to think, well, how do you integrate it? into a CNN or a transformer. So if you're thinking, oh, I'm just not going to use any transformers, I'm just going to build my own thing. That's how you lose. You cannot compete with transformers. So yeah. you, when you're designing structure, you have to think about how do you embed it in a transformer. But yeah, so you were saying. That's what I was going to ask you roughly, actually, which is how do you think about the right level of structure in your own work? Because your work on planning, it is kind of adding a kind of structure. Yeah. And so what's the right level structure such that it would not be irrelevant like some really big model one example i mentioned is sparsity right if you're building a transformer maybe you want it to be sparse the other one is recurrence i actually in the beginning of my phd i wanted to work on sparsity and recurrence and in fact there there is some really clever work when people found that if you have a resnet and you look at like some block later in your resnet you can actually apply it multiple times (laughs) and not only it still works it actually improves your results so you just train your ResNet with 101 blocks, and then you repeat the block number, I don't know, 97, four times. There's no reason why this would work. 
you haven't trained the retinal with this block repeated, but you just take it. You do not change any weights and you just copy and paste this block several times. So presumably this block would produce very different features. And why would the features at the output of that block be any similar to the features at the input? That's very unclear. Like it seems that that should just completely collapse your performance. It should just become random, but it doesn't do that. In fact, it makes it better. So somehow in your ResNet, these blocks actually represent some computation that is already compositional in a very particular form. It's compositional in the sense that it's kind of recurrent. Mm-hmm. So presumably what the ResNet does is that this, there is this stream of information uh, that passes through the ResNet uh, on the skip connections. And then what each block does is it kind of modifies it slightly, but it doesn't actually fundamentally change the representation. It just does a little bit of computation on that representation. Mm-hmm. And the particular way in which it does this computation is somehow so generalizable that if you just repeat it again, it makes your representation even better, even though it was never trained for that. And so that I think, I still don't know what to think about that experiment. There was a paper about this at like ICLR 2018 or something like that. I don't remember at this point, but I suspect that that might be hinting at why ResNet works in the first place. Well, maybe that's because the way it's structured, it can learn recurrence. It just, for some reason, the way it operates is not quite literally recurrent. It doesn't quite literally apply the same weights, but it has some of this kind of structure where it just, there is a stream of information and it's being processed in some way recurrently. So, so it could even be that all of these blocks in the ResNet learn exactly the same computation, mm-hmm. uh, right? Like uh, presumably that's why you can apply just this block another time uh, mm-hmm. and it still works. It, it, it's because, well, that kind of tells you, well, maybe the blocks that are already in the ResNet, maybe they just learn the same computation. So maybe it just has to learn the, this idea that if you're processing some information, right? If, if there are multiple objects in the image, well, presumably you want to process them the same way. And that's why you need recurrence, right? You have to apply the same operation several times. And that's how you get generalization. It's by noticing that there is some computation that you can apply several times to the image in different places. And so convolution is one simple way of doing that. So that's why convolution works. But a more general way to do that would be recurrence. And now that I think about it, transformer actually does exactly that as well, right? Like it also applies the same exact operation to different uh, parts of the image. Presumably this structure of recurrence would also be very easy to learn in a transformer. And some people have actually experimented, I believe, with a recurrent transformer, meaning a transformer where your layers, your attention layers are actually the same. Your attention layers have some kind of memory, but they share weights. And that also works well and it improves results. So that to me is kind of a really powerful concept. Can you reuse the same computation? And I think that's fundamentally something that should be in neural networks. Sparsity should just help with the originalization as well. So it, it does feel like something that sometimes happens in brains. We sometimes think about specific concepts. So perhaps at least some part of your representation has to be sparse. It does go against the main idea of deep learning, which is having a parallel distributed representation, but maybe you do need to have some sparse part of your representation. It doesn't really work empirically. It does feel very like a very appealing piece of structure. I don't necessarily know whether sparsity will actually be the right kind of structure. Perhaps these just dense vectors are already good enough. and Or maybe you just need sparsity for some part of your network, but not the other ones, because the, having these dense representations also seems to be very important. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I guess to summarize, my general feeling is that every time you think about structure and adding it to deep networks, well, how do you know it's already not there, right? Mm-hmm. If, if you want to add compositionality, well, maybe it already learns compositionality. So that, that's the first thing you should check. If you run it on a toy data set, it, it might not have it, but the way to really test it is to run it on a large data set and see that if it learns this structure on a large data set. Mm-hmm. 
And then, of course, for Arel, I do feel that models are important. I think there are a few... I think that does go against my arguments, right? Like, models are important. Models are a kind of structure, right? So why do we need structure? Maybe we should just be model-free. Mm-hmm. I think that's possible. It doesn't quite feel right because there's something else about models. They don't just give you a structure. They give you a particular kind of structure that lets you create new data. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a very powerful data-driven concept, right? Like, if you only train on the data you saw, maybe that's not enough data. Maybe you need to create new data, and that's what models give you. And the particular way in which the models are able to create new data is by noticing that your world is presumably a PomDP. It's a partial observable Markov decision process. Now, that means that if you can just figure out what the right latent state is, you can turn it into a latent MDP. Once you're an MDP, you can compose a new trajectory out of one-step predictive distributions. So as long as you can predict one step, well, you can create a new trajectory that's very different from everything you saw before. And that is because you will compose this trajectory from pieces that you saw. Maybe you saw each individual transition in this trajectory, but you never saw the entire trajectory. And so that's one thing that models give you is they give you this ability to kind of compose, well, create new data that you've never seen before. And it's even better if you generalize, of course, because maybe you've seen a transition that's similar to each transition in your trajectory, but that doesn't mean that you ever saw a trajectory that is similar to this. Because if you just compose these transitions in a clever way, you can get something that's very, very different from all of your data. And I feel that ability is fundamentally even though it's enabled by this structure, but I think that's benign structure. I think that's structure that's easy to embed. That this fact that you can recompose transitions, that's probably the right structure you need for reinforcement learning. If, if your algorithm ignores the structure, you're doing something wrong. And so mm-hmm. I think models are very powerful because they enable you to exploit that and enable you to generate new data. Yeah. I feel like that's sort of related to the idea in your model-based reinforcement via latent-space collocation stuff, if I understood that correctly. And that is, you're being able to use this model to like predict a little bit better. Like you're using this model structure, right, to sort of improve your RL algorithm. Yes. We have used specifically this exact kind of structure in LATCO, latent collocation, <laughs> which is that in collocation, you need a dynamics model and you need to optimize states using your dynamics model. But yeah, I guess it is right that it uses that kind of structure to come up with a clever optimization algorithm. I do think about LATCO as mostly just, I think it was a really interesting project. I think it's a very different way to do planning. And by leveraging this latent structure, it lets you do planning in a more clever way than other people have done with just cross-entropy method, the way people would do it in Planet or Visual Foresight. And I think that's powerful. And I think you need to do planning ultimately because... It's not always true that you will just be able to learn a policy that solves all of your tasks. It might just be that the number of tasks is so great, you will just not be able to learn this general policy. And at that point, you have to do planning. And similarly for us humans, we generally, sometimes we have to look into the future and kind of like come up with a plan and then try to follow this plan. Or sometimes we just, yeah. we just swing it and we just kind of, oh, okay, I, I feel like I, I know what to do. I'm, I'm just going to do what I feel is right. And so that what I feel is right, that that's doing it the model freeway. Perhaps you still trained your policy with the model, but Still, you're doing it kind of in a reactive way. But sometimes you also need planning and you specifically need planning in new situations that you've never seen before. So I do feel that planning is a very powerful concept. It is uh, particularly unfortunate that in reinforcement learning, the only place where planning is really helpful that I know of is uh, Go or chess or things like that. Uh, Go, the game of Go. So algorithms like AlphaGo that use MCTS. That is specifically because of this issue, just the state space is so large that you could not memorize a policy that solves the entire thing. You just need to do planning. Now, unfortunately, I cannot really run experiments on Go 
uh, because I don't have access. Well, actually, I actually do. Now I do because I'm at Google. So, okay. So unfortunately I can run experiments on Go, but I don't want to because they're too large and I'm interested in sort of more embodied problems. Mm -hmm. And I think in robotics, we are not quite yet at the point where planning would even be helpful. I feel like in robotics, model-based policy learning is perhaps all you need right now. At some point in the future, we will probably need planning when we actually need to adapt to a new situation. But right now we don't have these benchmarks to adapt to a new situation. So I think Latko will be particularly interested in these specific cases where you need to adapt to a new situation. But other than that, my general conclusion is that, well, I don't know, maybe you just learn a policy in your model and you don't actually need planning. You just use actor critic to learn that policy. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, why do you work on robotics instead of like these more open world simulators like MinRL or Rafter, which where mm. planning are more helpful? That's a great question. The answer to that would be inertia. You got to work on something that's a relatively standard benchmark. The standard benchmarks for RL, I mean, there's Atari. That's pretty interesting. There are these continuous control tasks from gym or DM control. So the walker type of stuff. And then there are the robotic tasks, which are also fairly standard. Atari is not really open world, so it doesn't solve your problem. So I guess the fact is the standard benchmarks are not really open world. And the benchmarks that we do have for the open world, I think they're very limited. Mm. And perhaps they're getting there. Like things like Crafter or Minecraft. I really like that a lot. The infrastructure for using them is, well, the infrastructure for using Minecraft is not quite there yet. I think it's very hard to use. You can similarly ask, you know, why not just use Carla or even just, what is it, GTA, some like actual video game. Yeah. And that's because it's just hard to use, right? And mm -hmm. Carla is especially notoriously hard to use. Crafter, I think is quite interesting. I think that's probably where we actually want to move towards. I think I will start using Crafter at some point, maybe in some point in very near future. I actually like that benchmark. I would say it's a very toy benchmark. And it's not even toy in the sense that it's easy. It's actually very hard, but it kind of looks toy. I think that's why there is a little bit of inertia where it just doesn't look as real as the robotics test. <clears throat> but that's just my mind, right? Like, I think Crafter is quite likely a better task to use than robotics. I just haven't really had the time to try it. But I also do think that ultimately something that's really interesting about robotics is there's a lot of data in robotics. And that is just because, well, the data that you want for robotics. Well, okay, actually, I wanted to mention a few different things. And then this is going back to our previous discussion, which is, well, where do you get the data? I think somebody asked this question. If RL should be data-driven, well, we don't have the data. So what do we do? Mm -hmm. And robotics in particular is interesting because, well, maybe we train on YouTube. YouTube has physical data. Robotics is also physical data, so maybe that will help. But also, I think there's huge progress being done in robotics. Actually, it, the progress that people would often think about is the Google work, Google Mountain View, Sergey's mm -hmm. lab. Obviously, great lab, doing a lot of great work, doing the best work in learning in robotics, perhaps, in my opinion. Don't want to offend anybody, but I think that the Google work is, well, it feels the best to me just because they have the most robots. So probably that's the only reason they're doing the best work that they can, because they can actually do it. Nobody else has that many robots, but it's extremely impressive. It's not quite generalizable. And something that's interesting about even the Google work is that it doesn't quite have the scale of data that we still want, right? People will think, oh, Google has thousands of robots. Well, they don't, they have seven robots, right? With seven robots, you cannot collect the actual amount of data that you want. And in particular, that's because, well, you have seven robots, but where do you collect that data from? Well, usually you would just get a table and set a bin, put a basket on that table and have the robot play in that basket. 
And you would, in fact, replicate the same table seven times for each different robot and replicate the same exact basket seven times for each exact robot because that helps your training. Right? Like that, that way, it's easier to train. But actually, it hurts your generalization because now your robot only works on that table and that particular bin. So that's what these Google people keep doing. And it's very counterproductive because they're not actually collecting data, even though they maybe they have the resources to do that, but the data they're collecting is not on the scale. It's perhaps on the scale at all. It doesn't have the same diversity. Diversity mm-hmm. is extremely important. What you want yeah. to do is you want to, well, you know, I want a robot that generalizes. If I work on manipulation, well, I want a manipulation robot that I just place in my kitchen and it can open a cabinet in my kitchen. I don't know why I want that. I, I can open the cabinet myself, but maybe in the future, I will have a robot that can do more than just opening a cabinet. Right now, we don't even have that. You can train the robot to open a cabinet in the Google kitchen, wherever. They have lots of kitchens at Google. It's not going to work in my kitchen because my kitchen looks different. So it's just going to be very confused. So that is still not enough. But I did want to mention just something that I'm very excited about and that the work that by other people, but I feel like it had been overlooked historically in Naval, but there are other platforms that are actually extremely useful for getting a lot of data. And in particular, very recently, we're seeing amazing progress on quadrupeds and bipeds, meaning dog robots, like the Boston Dynamics one, or there's a cheaper one from A1, I believe. I, I don't remember what the company called. And then Atlas also has a biped, a humanoid robot, Atlas. But there's also a cheaper one. There's a pair of legs, Cassie. So that, that Cassie is just literally a pair of legs. So that's a very easy robot to operate because it doesn't actually have a body. But they also built a full robot to digit that's pretty lightweight. It basically looks like a human. Just the knees go the other direction. So it looks a little alien. But other than that, it looks just like a human. Curiously, on both quadruped and biped robots, we now have very effective reinforcement learning trained policies. So there is this paper called Rapid Motion Adaptation from Deepak Patak's lab at CMU. And that paper is actually extremely effective in the sense that it just works in the wild. It's just an Apple policy. So it's the actual implementation of the thing. It's basically just this neural network that you need to run on your robot. It has some other pieces. It has some controllers that actually make sure that your robot executes correctly the actions from your neural network. But that uh, those controllers, they actually come with the robot. If you buy the robot, it's pretty cheap, actually. They send you the robot with these controllers. And the actual neural network is doing the high-level control in the sense of walking, so figuring out which joint actions it wants to execute. And it's pretty good at traversing all sorts of terrain and also sorts of challenging terrain in the sense that it can actually generalize to new terrain, right? Like it can walk on oil, it can walk on slipper things, it can walk on plastic, it can walk on mattresses. They tested it on a bunch of different things. And I feel like that's exactly the kind of generalization we want. We want systems to generalize like that, that, that can tackle diverse terrains in, in the case of locomotion. That system was just trained in simulation. And that's really the beauty of locomotion is that a lot of things you can simulate. And that's fundamentally because you don't need vision. In manipulation, you need vision. Vision is extremely hard to simulate with visual simulators we have are, are not quite as good so that we can, well, the thing that's specifically is hard is to have a simulator that's good at both vision and physics. We don't really have that. We have some simulators that are good at vision, some simulators that are good at physics. We need both together to actually train effective policies. But for these quadrupeds, you don't need vision, so you just need good physics, and we have good physics. So we can actually train right now with reinforcement learning a robot that's really good at simulation. And uh, similarly for bipeds, uh, there is this paper that, the paper from Deepak, some people know it is because it's from Deepak and it's from CMU. For bipeds, there has been a lot of papers that everybody just completely ignores because they don't even know who's writing them. But there's this one from... I actually, I even forgot the school. I think it's Arizona State or something. It's by this guy called Jonathan Hurst. The paper is called 
or at least the big paper I know, is called Symptoreal Learning of All Common Bipedal Gates via Periodic Reward Composition. And it, they have some method, it doesn't matter what the method does, but what does matter is they built a simulation that is good enough to train a biped robot to walk in simulation. And so then once you do that, well, then you just have a neural network and that neural network can make your biped, your humanoid robot, walk anywhere you want. Why is that powerful? Well, that is extremely powerful because now you can just go and collect the data in the real world because you have a robot that doesn't fall. The problem with robotics is that your robot keeps falling. Well, now it doesn't because you already have these policies that can make it walk in the real world. And you can do a lot more impressive things like that. There was a paper from Berkeley that did backflips. So it, even if your robot falls, the quadruped robot, I, I forget what the Berkeley paper is called, but it's from Sergey's lab as all of the other papers are naturally. And, and what they found is that in simulation, you can also train a policy that recovers from falls. And the way it recovers, it, it, it does crazy things, including backflips. So if your dog robot was running too fast and it just, it, it fell out and cannot recover, well, now you just use this controller that you just download from whatever the controller Berkeley people released, if they've released it, hopefully they will release it. If not, you can train it yourself. So you can run it. And even if your robot falls on its back, it's just going to do a flip and it's just going to stand up on, on its legs back again, which means that, well, that's an even better way to collect more data because now you don't even need a person to watch the robot because if it falls, it can get back up. And so because of these two papers, I feel extremely positive about real world data collection. I think these papers are just the start because they're actually trained in simulation, but maybe now that we have these robots, you can start collecting the data in the real world and you can come up with much better policies by collecting the data in the real world. So I don't know what's going to be the platform. That is the first platform to release a huge data set of robot behavior. Maybe it's going to be a humanoid robot, maybe a dog robot, maybe a manipulation arm. But I hope that somebody just buys a hundred of these robots, collects a huge data set and releases it, a diverse data set in, in the wild so that we can actually start doing good reinforcement learning research. This has to be done for us to start doing good research. Whatever we do before that is just walking in the dark. We're just blind because we don't have an evaluation protocol. This data set is required for us to have an evaluation protocol. Just a final point. I even suspect the data set that gets released might be a manipulation data set. It cannot be released by Google. Google just, it's not a robotics company. They don't have enough robots. But if you think about Amazon or whatever else, Boston Dynamics, whatever other robotics companies, well, any reasonable robotic company would have thousands of robotic arms manipulating objects, not in the wild, in a factory, presumably, but it's a huge industry, right? There are lots of data in robotics. We just don't have them. The companies have them. They got to release their data. If the first person to release a huge data set will get perhaps a similar number of citations as ImageNet did. If we just have an ImageNet benchmark for robotics, that's going to be a huge breakthrough. That's cool. That's really interesting. I guess maybe one thing I'm here for these robotic manipulation data sets is that even in the wild, they're like because the robot doesn't move itself, like the arm and stick to actually are a really diverse data set. Like what you actually want is the arm to be in all sorts of places and facing all sorts of direction, interacting with very different types of environments and objects. Yeah, for sure. And, and, that's a little harder because a lot of these factory robots, there are stationary. So presumably the factory people will not release a, a, move, a mobile manipulation data set. Mm -hmm. Certainly in academia or, or in an industry, there are prototype robots for mobile manipulation. I believe Google is building one with their startup. So maybe that will happen as well. Yeah, certainly if you have a mobile robot, that would be a lot better for generalization. Maybe even Google can do it. Maybe they just 
need to run their robot everywhere at Google. And that will be a data set that's diverse enough. So I don't know why they haven't done it. Yeah, me neither. Yeah. Interesting. Maybe you could tell them. <laughs> yeah. uh, I should. Yeah, you should. Did you have any other unusual or controversial opinions that you wanted to share? This was a lot of talking about the future, a lot of speculation, something that's less speculative. Although this is still speculative, right? Because I, I don't know. These are my opinions. I don't know if this is right or not. But yeah, I can just talk, I guess, about my research experience. I've been pretty lucky to work with a lot of different people. So I don't really feel qualified to talk about what's the right way to do research. But I've learned from a lot of people. And so I know what other people told me. And there are some things that I've, I've also just learned myself, and that's my research philosophy. And I think the biggest one that's, okay, and we haven't touched on this in the discussion at all, but that is something that I kind of learned through my PhD. When I started, I was very idea-oriented. I was kind of, okay, here's a, a really clever idea. I'm going to write a paper about this. I knew exactly what the paper has to be. It has to implement this idea. It had to have everything that the paper has, you know, experiments, figures, stuff like that. But I was very convinced that like on the start of the project, basically, I would come up with an idea and then I would just go until I make it work. I was also very over overconfident in the sense that I would just, I wouldn't believe that it does work unless I actually see the results that it does work, which I, would, I was like, well, dude, the idea is good. It has to work. But I think the biggest problem with this approach is actually the very premise of coming up with the idea. And mm -hmm. because, because it feels like a paper should have some kind of extremely novel idea, and then you, you build the rest of it around your novel idea. But th that, I think, is very counterproductive. And it's a counterproductive for a very simple reason. And the reason is that we already have lots of ideas. Just, first of all, ideas are cheap. But second of all, <laughs> even the existing ideas, like I don't even know what all of the existing ideas are, because I, I cannot read the 500 papers that have been published this year in reinforcement learning. So there are many more ideas that other people are having that I don't even know about because I don't have time to look at them. And then if you just come up with another idea, well, it's just going to be one of the 500 other ideas. And most likely, unless it's somehow a, a genius idea, it will just get lost. And the reason that happens is, well, it's easy to come up with an idea that is novel, but it's hard to come up with an idea that's useful. Novel ideas are, first of all, cheap in the sense that if you came up with a novel idea, well, that's good. That's something you're supposed to be able to do as a researcher, but that doesn't make you special. And certainly that doesn't even say that you've achieved anything. I can come up with 10 novel ideas a day. That doesn't mean anything. What matters is, can you come up with something that other people are going to use? Can you come up with something that actually solves a problem? And so I fundamentally believe that you have to start with the problem. Both approaches are valid. If you're really good at coming up with ideas, there are people who like come up with 10 good ideas a year and they implement all of the ideas and some of them even work and they publish the 10 papers. Usually you would publish both the ideas that work and the ideas that don't because like if you work on something for four months, you don't want to just let it go. You just, you still submit the paper and maybe you, you know, you kind of, you, you hack something together, you, you tune your method until it works well and then you get it accepted. I don't think that's quite the right way of doing research. I think if you want to, or it might be the right way of doing research, I think both are valid. Okay, I'm not going to say that like, Starting with the problem is the right way of doing things. You can start with ideas and still be successful, but you don't have to. You can just start with the problem. And it's it's not, in fact, it's the harder way of doing things because it's it's very uncertain, right? Like if you start with the problem, well, what is the idea, right? Presumably, if the problem is hard, you will need new ideas to solve the problem, right? It's not, not all problems can be solved with engineering. So you can just hope that you're going to come up with the idea down the line as you are solving the problem, but also maybe not. Maybe you just solve the problem without any new ideas, right? So what do you do then? 
So maybe that's the most controversial opinion is that, well, that is still valid, right? It's just, there are so many papers that have high novelty, right? But don't actually solve any problems. If you solve the problem, even if you don't have a new idea or like if your idea is just combining two things together, well, that's, you've solved the problem, right? Why did nobody else solve the problem? Uh, and you did, right? Like, there, there has to be something that you've done different. So you should be able yeah. to publish your paper, right? Not everybody comes up with the theory of relativity in each paper. You just, if you solve the problem, to me, that's already a proof that you have something novel because you know, if you did it and nobody else did, then what's happening? We completely agree. Exactly. Our, whole, our whole approach is who cares if we create something novel? Like there are a ton of ideas out there, many of which work quite well. Like yours and Dan Carroll's work, those work quite well. Let's apply those ideas to our problem and then we'll have to invent some new things in the process. But like the problems are more important. Solving them yeah. yeah, exactly. Like that's how I generally think about things. I just think about the problem and then if it's an interesting problem, it will require new ideas. And then I will come up with the new ideas. But it's just coming up with a good idea. Coming up with an idea is easy. Coming up with a good idea is hard. So there's also the other argument. Well, if you want to come up with a really, really good idea, that will take a lot of your time. So you should only spend that time after you know that it's actually necessary. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like the other way of thinking about it. But the first way of thinking about it is, well, coming up with a, an okay idea is very easy. So if you come up with an okay idea, well, that's, it might get you a paper, but I don't think that's worth much if, if this idea is not really, really good. Mm-hmm. But I guess the other piece, and that also might be controversial, but even fundamentally, even if you came up with a new idea, a lot of people want their idea to be extremely different from everything else. And I think that just stems from people not reading enough papers. Your idea is never going to be different from everything else. It's just, if you think you come up with something that nobody else have thought of, well, you just haven't read enough papers. It's as simple as that. If you, in reality, all of the good ideas that I've seen, or 90% of the good ideas, are either similar to what everybody else is already doing, or that is relatively uncommon because then people wouldn't write a paper. But there are some papers that are just something that everybody's already doing, but you just write a paper about it and, and you just argue really well that it's a good idea to do. Or perhaps a, a lot of even good ideas would be just the same ideas in the paper that came out even fairly recently, but just done better. And I feel like that's still extremely valid, right? Like if you, if you just did it better, well, you should write the paper about it. Right? You should cite the prior work, of course, but it doesn't have to be that your idea is completely different. In fact, most likely, it will be that someone else will have thought about this exact same idea and wrote a paper about it. And then, of course, especially in supervised learning, it's impossible to write a paper about any novel ideas because all of the novel ideas were invented 30 years ago by Jeff Hinton and other people. So whatever you do, it's just it's always going to be something that people have thought about 30 years ago or, or, you know, or Schmidt-Huber. And that's okay. It's just, uh-huh. you're just re-implementing all, all the ideas. In fact, maybe a better way to do research would be to just read all of Jeff Hinton's papers and just re-implement all of them. You will come up with <laughs> then if you were coming up with the ideas by yourself. That's cool. I love that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good punch of opinion. Although we agree with that. Yeah. <laughs> Show me big, yeah. Yeah, I guess it's something that, I think this is maybe not, well, I do think it's perhaps controversial in the sense that a lot of people would disagree, a lot of people would be like, yeah. oh, I thought well, people must agree. Yeah. And like looking at reviewer comments, uh, <laughs> just baseball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but maybe the last point I wanted to say on this, I do feel the, maybe the greatest argument for starting with the problem is that at least then you know you're solving something important. You can pick an important problem. And yes. 
I think this is just a pet peeve, but also maybe this is more of my personal philosophy. I think the way people fail to write good papers is if they don't try to. A lot of people just think, oh, I'm, I want to get a, you know, an, an Europe's paper. And yeah, if you want to get a Europe's paper, you can do it. It's not that hard. Mm -hmm. But if you just want to get a Europe's paper, it's not going to be good. If you want to get a good Europe's paper, you have to specifically target that. I feel like, I mean, it depends on circumstance. And for many people, it's just maybe their advisor is pressuring them to write the simplest possible paper and not think too much about this. So I think it really depends on the circumstance. But I do feel that a lot better research could be done if people just kind of were trying to target better research as opposed to just, oh, I'm going to add another paper to my CV. And, and maybe the reason that happens is because people don't actually, not everybody realizes that. But if you get a paper that's, let's say, two times better, let's say you, like, you do two times the experiments or your method works, you know, you spend two times more on designing the method. That's the, that's the part that people mostly skip. They, they just, they spend a couple of days on coming up with the method and they, then they spend six months on implementing it. But maybe it should be more equal, right? Maybe you should spend at least, a, at least a month in designing the method and that way you will be able to come up with a method that's maybe two times better. It feels like a disproportionately a large amount of time to spend because if the method is only two times better, why do you spend 10 times more time on it? But the trick is if your paper is two times better, well, that means it will be probably if you have an average paper, well, that's median, you're 50% of the papers, two times better puts you in like 99% of the papers. Most papers are not that good. They're like, okay, it's very rare to see a good paper. It's just the value of writing a paper that's two times better than the average, not 10 times better than the average. I'm not saying you know, like a, a dramatic breakthrough, but just a paper that stands out at least a little bit from the crowd. The value of that is immense because unfortunately, the way science works, at least in reinforcement learning, it's a little bit like a softmax. It's just, you look at the paper, if your paper is like 20% better, people will read it several times more often. If your paper is two times better, that will be the only paper people know and nobody will read <laughs> the other papers. So I think there's huge value in just focusing on what's important. But then of course, you cannot just be like, oh, I'm going to solve reinforcement learning. My project is solving reinforcement learning. You have to also learn something from your project. So you have to make sure you're not just trying to solve a problem that's impossible. And not everything you do will be important. A lot of what you do will be probably unimportant, but will not yield important results, but you have to learn something from it. So just, you don't just ma magically solve a problem that nobody else solved if you don't know more that than other people. So you have to also work on things that don't seem important, but give you particular insights that other people don't have. Yeah. Do you feel like you've actually worked on a fair amount of unimportant things or like ideas that failed or did most things work? Did I work on unimportant things? I think that's several different questions. I do think, yeah, I certainly also, I mean, in the beginning, you always start with simple problems, right? So when I started my PhD, I also kind of, I worked on things that I didn't even know whether they're important or not. I was just practicing. So obviously you do that. Towards the end of my PhD, I am trying to kind of focus myself on something that I personally think is important. I think that's a skill you should have. You should know how to judge whether an idea is important or not. And also whether you can make a contribution, right? The ideas are important, but you cannot make the contribution. Right. Did a lot of things fail? Yeah, a few things. I, I mean, research, I mean, most of my ideas failed, right? Like naturally, or at least most of the kind of like defense of what we're talking, right? If you mean an idea, something, you know, something that I'm trying for a week, most of these fail. It's just, I'll be trying something and then I'll figure out either this doesn't work the way I imagined and I need to adjust it slightly, or maybe it's just a complete nonsense idea and I, I need to start from scratch. So hopefully that doesn't happen the way you, where you, like, you spend you know, a year and then you find out that something fails, but that hasn't really happened to me. Usually I would try to schedule a project in a way that 
well, you have to fail fast, right? Like you have to start with the part that's going to fail and then you will know in a month or so. So I don't think I actually even had like sort of really big failures where I worked on something for a really long time and then it it didn't work out. I had some projects, but which I just couldn't finish because I didn't have time that happened. But definitely I had a few things that are still bugs me that they did not work because I really feel like they should work, but every time I tried them, it didn't. And I could mention a few, but in particular with like Lexa and plan to explore for Lexa for a really long time, I tried to use uh, empowerment, which is this, sometimes it's called variational intrinsic control. The, the other paper that people know is Diane, diversity is all you need. And it's just a clever way of learning skills. That's not goal condition, but learns sort of a latent representation of skills. And it just never worked. Mm-hmm. And the conclusion that I came to is that Diane just doesn't work. I went back and I read the literature and I realized, well, actually all of the environments they evaluate are on are very easy. It's just it's probably this thing actually doesn't really work the way it's supposed to. That was a paper that tricked me because the math is beautiful, but it only works in very simple environments. Perhaps it will scale though. I think it just, maybe some more tricks are needed, but right now it doesn't really feel like it's working yet. Uh, some recent work on that has been a lot more impressive, I would say. Some of the recent follow-ups from actually maybe even this year or last year. Certainly last year, there were a few papers that got it to work better. When I was trying it, I did not have those ideas. That was a fun thing. So then we ended up with just doing goal-conditioned distant mm-hmm. learning. Something else that's kind of similar, and this is an idea that it actually worked. Well, or like it worked and it didn't work at the same time. But so for Plato Explorer, we just always thought about it in the unsupervised case, where you just don't have any rewards, basically, and you just explore the environment by itself. Mm-hmm. The standard thing in reinforced learning, though, is when you have rewards. And when you have rewards, I think plan to explore still should be extremely useful. And so I've been trying for quite some time to get, well, I had been trying for some time to get plan to explore to work in that setting, where you also have the extrinsic rewards. And what I found is that most of the environments that people design do not actually require exploration. That is because exploration is so hard that people ignore this problem. Every, like people never design an environment with a hard exploration problem because then nothing would be able to solve it. So it's, it's a chicken and egg problem where nobody releases these environments. Yeah. So that's kind of a fun thing. But then there are some other environments with sparse rewards where plant explore actually works. Even in the unsupervised setting, it's pretty good. And if you combine the intrinsic and the extrinsic reward, it works even better. But that I only found that out after I wrote the paper. And now I don't know what to do with that because it's like, it's such a simple result that do I write another paper? Well, it will probably know that's too simple of a result. I cannot write another paper about it. So it's, <laughs> it's something that both didn't work and did work in the sense that it did not work on standard environments. It did work on sparse reward environments, but I still don't know what to do with it because, yeah. That's interesting. Running on environments that actually do require exploration. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's what I'm saying, right? So like on those environments, it does work. But then it's still too simple of an idea. I'm glad you shared it because hopefully someone else can hear it and uh, at least be able to know oh. about it. Yeah. And I won't just die. Exactly. Energy to remember. <laughs> yeah, I'll try to share it in some other ways as well. But in my experience, plan to explore just works amazingly well. People, well, I feel like this is just bragging, but it, it's also not bragging in the sense that I didn't, I suppose I wrote a paper about it, but it's not like I invented ensembles or I, I invented model based around. We just kind of tried the two things together and it turns out that it works mm-hmm. great, right? And it, it's kind of, you know, I didn't know it's going to work. I did not expect it to work so well. It was very surprising to me that it works so well, mm-hmm. but I feel it's just like one of these things that just 
you think they shouldn't work. You think it's kind of funny because like, well, you plan with a model that doesn't know what's, well, you know, like you're planning for exploration. So you're specifically plan planning for the uncertain regions. So how are you going to even plan if your model is bad in that region, right? Like it, it feels like a contradiction. And for a very long time, I thought it's never going to work. And then it just worked and it worked better than everything else I've seen. I have an explanation for that, but I, sometimes I still cannot believe it. And it's also extremely robust in the sense that basically any environment that I've ran it on, it works reasonably well, usually works better than the model three methods. So it's just, there are a lot of these kind of like little results that I have where I've seen that it's actually a very robust methods and it's applicable in, in the range of settings. I don't quite know what to do with that, but it's, I guess it's, to me, that's encouraging just because it validates the principle that you can actually explore by sort of testing hypotheses where your hypothesis in this case is, well, what's the right model of the world? Thanks for listening to the Generally Intelligent Podcast. If you like this, please consider giving us a rating and leaving a review on Apple Podcast. On Twitter, I'm at Kanjun, K-A-N-J-U-N, and our lab is at Gen Intelligent. Until next time, 